Hi there, I'm Clint Stout, and I'm a beginning comic writer. Uh, I'm just starting out on my journey, uh, trying to break into comics. And with me, I have my co-host, James, from Cowmugga Comics. Hello! Alright, this is Comics That Work. Uh, the goal of this show is uh, basically to explore what makes a good comic. I want to get deep into the details and uh, find out from different perspectives uh what people like about their favorite comic books. Uh, every episode, I'm going to have a different co-host on, so uh, James won't always be with me. But uh, I'm going to have the co-host pick a book of their choice, and uh, we're just going to talk in pretty good detail about it. Now, this is a book that you've never read, that well, someone is recommending to you. That's true. In this case, it is. Okay. I read it now. But... In the future, is it allowable for someone to recommend a book that you have read? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Anything. I mean, as long as, you know. And what are the, the clearly defined uh, lines of what you could... Like, if I wanted to say, let's read Squadron Supreme, are you going to say a 12-issue maxi-series is too much? Or word? do you have a... Is it defined like that? Um... I don't really have any clear lines. I'd, I'd probably say like a 12 issue maxi might be a little, a little too large of a story to focus on. My original plan was to just do single issues, and then so I ruined can... it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I actually think, I think that's good that we're starting with a four issue mini like this. Um, I, I, yeah, I think just like if there's a. An OGN, like, even as big as, like, Blankets or something like that. Um, or, like, a four- or five-issue miniseries, or just a single issue. Um, or even a manga volume. Uh, but I don't really have any set perimeters. I mean, if I don't think that something's going to be good for it, I'll uh, I'll talk with the co-host a little bit about it. Just because, I mean, even something like a four-issue miniseries, we're going we're gonna to have to condense it, because mm -hmm. we can't talk, like, issue by issue. So, no. yeah, that's pretty much it. So, James, you are one of the owners of Cowmugger Comics in I Oconomowoc, sure Wisconsin. am. I sure am. Yeah, and that's the store I go to. But I'm not... Hey! Yeah, I, I, I like don't that. just have you on because you're my friend and all that. You actually know about comic books. I know a little bit. Yeah. I've been reading comic books for... Uh, a, it's going on? Well, I just turned... I just entered the 33 Club, so I've been reading comics since I was five. And uh, that's that's a good amount of time. Yeah, um, but I, my knowledge of comics, as we have often discussed, I think if you took what I know and what you know, we could cover about 75 years worth of comics. Although, like, the heavy lifting from the last 20 years is all going to be on you, specifically, Probably. like, anything recent. Mm -hmm. um, despite having a store, my knowledge tends to be more, um, I like, you know, Golden Age and Silver and Bronze, and I'm not as familiar with a lot of the the current stuff like you are yeah and so, i'm not familiar about any of that stuff so and we're gonna you we're gonna turn that around yeah <laughs> um but yeah so i i have the store and i'm a longtime comic reader um i this is not my first time on a podcast i also have a current podcast called the Cowcast, where we talk about it is a comic uh related podcast but it's more uh, discussing and analyzing industry um, topics, not not necessarily talking about comic content. We kind of steer away from that. We're not talking about characters and, and 
specific titles. Um, and I also used to have, with some other guys, we had a video game podcast called Well-Versed in the Classics that we started about eight years ago now. So I've been no stranger to podcasting, but uh, I'm always happy to be on a new one. Yeah, and thank you for being there. Yeah, of course. I'm here. Uh, you were actually a customer at the store when I, I used to work there. That's right. But then I moved out for college for like a semester and then lost my job because they, yeah. Well, I, so when I had <laughs> first moved to Oconomowoc, it was right after the store had opened, mm-hmm. which is 13 years ago now, 13 years ago. Was yeah. it opened in? Probably. Yeah. 12 years ago. 12 years ago. Something like that. Anyways, moved to Oconomowoc, and of course I switched over to the comic store that was in town that I could walk to. And I was, I think, the third person to start a, a pull list there. And nice. um, so I went there for, for quite a while, and I don't necessarily think I remember you working there when I was there. To be quite honest with you, I, That's I feel okay. bad, but you know. Well, yeah, I was, I was there specific days of the week. So. There were, and there were a lot of, at the time, there were a lot of different people working there. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, it's a little bit of a switcheroo right now, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. And I still live in Oconomowoc, and we are sitting, uh, we're doing this podcast in my three seasons room, and it is, what is it, about 94 degrees out right now? I, I wouldn't say quite there but it's it is hot and humid though so yeah. we're drinking some uh, some beers and brandy in the sunroom and that is true and about to talk some comics and lovely Oconomowoc yeah you should come visit if you've never been please do it's it's pretty normal you want to get down to uh, brass tacks here yeah sure uh oh actually um I just want to talk a little bit more about what kind of comics you are usually into you mentioned you or more familiar with a lot of older stuff, mm-hmm. but um, well, like, what kind of stuff do you enjoy the most? Currently, the most? I do read a lot of current books. Uh, Walking Dead is one that I've been lucky enough to read since it started coming out. Okay. I picked a copy of that and Invincible off the shelf at the same time, and uh, enjoyed that ever since. I kind of fell off Invincible, but I've stayed on Walking Dead. I've always been a fan of horror and survival horror and stories like that. Yeah. Consequently... I've also been a big Garth Ennis fan in all of his iterations from Preacher to Hitman um, to The Boys to Crossed. Just about anything that he's done, I've, I've loved. And I think one thing that a lot of people people think about Garth Ennis and they think about his, his bigger stories, they think about Preacher, which I'm... Preacher was one of the, the big defining comics, I think, of... I want to say my childhood. Um <laughs> And I, and I guess that probably sounds bad reading Preacher as a child, yeah. but uh, Preacher was, I did, oh, I did, because well, nice. I, I, I bought, when the second issue came out, I'd been buying Wizard Magazine, and Wizard was talking about Preacher being like the hottest book on the market, the like the craziest book, you'll never read anything mm-hmm. like it, and I went into a store in Milwaukee, and uh, I was, I would have been eight at the time. And they let me buy it right off the shelf. They didn't stop me. Oh, gosh. So I bought Preacher, and then I read it pretty much every every issue after that. I was never able to get a hold of the first issue off the shelf uh, when it originally came out. I, but I, won, I got one a couple of years later. Cool. And um, Garth Ennis, though, besides that stuff, he's got a lot of great 
one-shots, miniseries. I think overall my, my favorite Garth Ennis work is his stuff that is more rooted in history. He's, I'm a big, big fan of reading. I've always been very interested in reading about military history and reading about World War II and World War I and the Civil War. And I've had relatives that have been in just about every conflict uh, since the Civil War. My grandpa spent four years in the Pacific. And so I've naturally gravitated towards Garth Ennis's World War II stuff. Yeah. And he writes a lot of it. And he writes, I mean, just some of the best written World War. The attention to detail that he has is just incredible. So I've always really appreciated that. And there's kind of two Garth Ennis's. There's the Garth Ennis... They can write stuff like um, Adventures in the Rifle Brigade and more. the more comical th Dicks was a, a series he did for a while with, <laughs> I, I think, through Avatar and it was published by another company for a while. Yeah. Where it's just kind of goofy, over-the-top stuff that everybody, mm -hmm. that a lot of people associate with him. Yeah. But then you have the earnest Garth Ennis where his stories are, he's got a lot of heart in them. And that's not to say that the two don't ever intersect, because Preacher would certainly have elements of both of those conflicting. Everything that happened to Hair Star and mm -hmm. Face, but you also <laughs> had the relationships between the characters that got pretty messed up and pretty serious, and it was a lot of, it was, uh, you know, very, very heavy stuff. Um, but the more earnest Garth Ennis stuff has always been my absolute favorite of his. Um, specifically, the war stories that he did for Vertigo. Now he's doing a war story series for Avatar, which is also great. Okay. But the Vertigo stuff, he had just incredible, incredible artists like David Lloyd, Dave Gibbons. He had, um, he did work with, um, he did Chris Weston. The, the stuff that he did was just incredible. Uh, and if you are a fan of reading fiction or nonfiction around that era, his, his stuff is a must, I think. Um, mm. but, he also has kind of translated that into uh, some newer stuff, which is the book that I picked out that we'll get to later. I won't say what yeah. it is yet and spoil it. Um, so obviously I like Garth Ennis, but what else do I like? I'm a big fan of Ed Brubaker. Mm -hmm. I, Ed Brubaker, has, he's never written anything that hasn't let me down. Um, I, just, I just read for the first time one of his first crime books that he put out, which was Scene of the Crime. Okay, have you read that with, one? With uh, Michael Lark. Yeah. I, I haven't read it yet, but... Okay. Um, yeah, I, I plan on reading it pretty soon. I'll loan it you my copy. Cool. It's okay. great, and it's, I mean, we could maybe save that for another time, mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, I, I wonder if Ed Brubaker um, has seen, I'm sure he has, but season two of True Detective on HBO seems like they lifted half of that from Scene of the Crime. Really? Yeah, okay. Ed Brubaker, so Ed Brubaker, he's just a hell of a writer. I'm, I've always, always yeah. loved everything he's put out. Um, and I keep up with, my DC, not as much as I probably should. I definitely tend to gravitate more towards your independent titles, though. Yeah, I've, I've become too. more of a reader that follows certain writers and follows certain... I can't even say that I necessarily follow artists anymore, but I, I'll i follow anything that, that Brubaker does, anything that, um, that Ennis does, um, and, and more concepts than anything else. I don't really follow characters. I used to buy everything that had the Punisher in it. And yeah. Kind of gets to the point where you have to pick and choose. And, mm -hmm. you know, once I really love not to beat a dead horse, but Garth Ennis's run on Punisher Max was 
my favorite run of the series. Yeah. So I, I just follow writers that I like, and those writers tend to usually be guys that are writing uh, independent books okay. or image titles, Dark Horse, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Wood, Briggsland. Okay. Fan of that. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. And uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but... Uh, That's what podcasts are all about, so I don't... I guess. I don't mind. <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned that you read more uh read more independent stuff i feel like there's kind of a migration of people reading you know big two books over Mm -hmm. to like sometimes even exclusively independent stuff like my dad started with comics back in the 90s you know rob liefeld jim lee and stuff but now i don't think he reads one superhero book do you see that in subscription lists at your store i sort of do but so one thing that I would, uh, I think everybody's interests are, are going to be fueled by a couple of things, but nostalgia still plays a big, a big part into the books that we end up going back to. And I don't, I don't read a lot of superhero stuff anymore, but if you were to ask me my, if you said name your 10 favorite comic stories, almost all of them are going to be superhero stories. I'm going to, I'm going to say Kingdom Come. I'm going to say Jeff Johns run on. JSA, um, Kurt Busiek and Fabian Nicieza's run on Thunderbolts, books that I would be hesitant to pick up and read now. Honestly, if, if somebody said, yeah. Thunderbolts, it's a great book, you should pick it up. It's about villains that try to turn into heroes, jump on in issue 43. Well, I, I mean, I read Thunderbolts from the first issue, and mm-hmm. back in the 90s, before i mean you had your usenet groups but you didn't have the internet spoiling everything months before it comes out so the the thunderbolts reveal was a shock at the time it was a big surprise and that was the hook that when i read that issue in the comic shop that got me to buy the book and then follow it and then it was the great character development that that came after that that kept me reading it was that the Um, first thunderbolt series then it was it was and that was the one that uh kurt busick and uh mark bagley did but again, I, if somebody said you should jump in on this title now, I would be apprehensive. And I think that that does a, a disservice to me because I, I wonder how many really great stories are out there right now that I'm not jumping into because of that predilection now. Yeah. And that, that, I guess, almost expectation that you've sort of matured and you're going to be reading. Now, I, I just read this and I, I don't read Marvel or I don't read DC. I don't read a lot of Marvel. I still do read DC. Mm-hmm. But I don't read a lot of Marvel. Um, but I guess my point is, I just wonder if we, if that mentality that you brought up is holding people back from reading really, really great stories that maybe 10 years from now they look back at and say, that's in my top 10, but it's, it's superheroes. So, and that's yeah. the, and that's without even going into anything that Alan Moore did, you know, mm-hmm. with a, with a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, you want to get into the book then? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, let's get into the book. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Unknown Soldier, uh, by, written by Garth Ennis and art by Killian Plunkett. Uh, it also has colors by James Sinclair and letterings done by Ellie Deville. It's a 
DC Comics Vertigo four issue series uh, from I think ninety seven to ninety eight is when it ran. Um, Sounds right. Yeah, and uh, just so you know, we will be uh, going really in depth into the book, so there definitely will be spoilers. That's not just a spoiler warning; it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a spoiler gear- guarantee. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I picked this book because we're I mean we're trying to pick stuff that a I knew you hadn't read this, mm-hmm. and b it was something that isn't really tied to continuity. It's sort of a it's a book that can be completely read in a vacuum, having no knowledge of the Silver Age character who known as the Unknown Soldier. Yeah. Although this kind of does reference some of that stuff in a, in kind of a roundabout way. Definitely. It, it makes it sort of makes that. Um, it, I guess if you read this and then you go back and you reread some of the old Bob Kaniger Unknown Soldier, that mm-hmm. it, it might put a new twist on it, which I think is always a cool thing. But uh, to go into the creators a little bit before we start talking about the book, obviously Garth Ennis, I think I've said enough about. Yeah, I think so. Now, Killian Plunkett is an interesting guy. Are you familiar with him at all? I had not heard of him before reading this. Okay. What did you think of his art? I liked it. It was it was good. Yeah, it's really I good. Mean, yeah. I don't know why I haven't seen his stuff elsewhere, but what he, else has he done? Well, he did not a whole hell of a lot. All right. He did. Um, now, I think he did some fill-in work on Mark Millar's Superman Red Sun. Really? He did. He did. Hmm. I know that, at the very least, he did a little bit of work on it. But the big, the big thing that he did that I'm just as big a fan of is one of the four... I suppose I should have mentioned this earlier, that one of the other franchises that I like to follow is the Aliens franchise, going back to the early Dark Horse stuff before Alien 3 came out. Yeah. I've always loved that stuff. Predator as well, although those stories haven't been quite as good. But Killian Plunkett did a four-issue series called Aliens Labyrinth that is one of my, I think, one of the top two or three non-movie Aliens uh, stories. And okay. he did the art for that just phenomenally detailed cool i think that the the guy he has a very very um i don't know you you're more the creative type how would you describe his art style i mean there's there's lots of shadows that are used um i'd I'd probably call it like a a noir looking i mean it definitely works with that that type of genre Mm -hmm. um so you could see him doing something with uh brubaker rucka or one of those guys yeah probably i mean i I definitely can see him working with Garth Ennis. I mean, not just after <laughs> yeah. reading this, but it just kind of seems like something you'd see. Um, but anyway, so yeah. Killian Plunkett, he's a guy who hasn't done, he hasn't done a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. But the, the story is something that when people tell me that they like espionage or they like a lot, I've recommended this book to a lot of people that like Greg Rucka. Queen and Country, things like yeah, that. I can definitely see that. It's, it is, it, I mean, it's a spy book. Yeah, it's the was... main, yeah, the main character works for the CIA, he's a CIA agent. Mm-hmm. And they, they start off with him sort of telling off his superiors in Washington uh, for not killing, he was, he's kind of recapping a mission in the beginning. Yeah. 
and they tell him off for not killing some kids that were supposed to be part of the mission because he mm-hmm. I think ended up witnesses to it or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. But he okay. ended up he he, he says uh, he he tells them off for about three panels and kind of explains it. But he's a very very um, professional guy. He's a very yeah. professional character. But I do like how um, this is the the quote that starts it off where one of these very X-Files-esque smoking men sitting in the dark room questioning him, looking at slides of all the, the dead bodies, says, uh, there's one question still troubling us. Sergeant Morris's report mentioned two witnesses to the shooting who you, in fact, allowed safe passage from the area. Any expl- ugh, explanation for that, Agent Clyde? And he goes on and on for like a whole page and then, the, the part that I that really matters is he says, so might I respect or might I respectfully submit that in the future, if I'm to be required to murder children, such instructions should be specifically stated within each mission's parameters. And then it's kind of it pans to the to the guys that are the smoking men yeah. behind the scenes and one of them's kind of pinching his brow and uh-huh. just you, a perfect silent panel. There. Exactly, exactly. And then Clyde they say, Thank you, Agent Clyde, that will be all and he walks out. And one of them says, fucking Boy Scout. <laughs> and uh, he says, what the hell are we doing with someone like him in the field? So right away, they, they sort of paint a picture of what he's about. He's a guy who's not afraid to do wet work. You know, he's, he's somebody that'll go out and he'll lead a mission and, and kill. He's not afraid to kill and he's not afraid to get blood on his hands. Yeah. But he's also not a sadist and he's not a, a sociopath and he's not going to just go out and murder a bunch of children because they saw him do this. You know, yeah. he's a guy that has morals and he has boundaries so uh, right off the bat within two pages three pages they do a great job establishing who this main character is mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a perfect way of starting the story because i mean because of his ideals and you know wanting wanting to be a you know better than other people mm-hmm. uh he really sticks out like a sore thumb but it's not world. it's not wanting to be better than other people it's it's as much as yeah, it is that's a bad way of putting it <laughs> he ha- well no he has um but you also put it correctly that he's a, a man of high ideals, and he mm-hmm. he believes in he believes in America. He believes in the and I guess to preface this, it's going to be hard. This story and kind of dissecting the story is going to be really easy to get into politics. You don't you you think so? Yeah, maybe because the whole point of it, it it's it's sort of vague, but. He believes in America, and he believes in what America represents, mm-hmm. and that becomes a, a big part later in the book, and kind of, I guess, the, the biggest theme in the book. Definitely, yeah. So I, these these guys tell him to go do something for his country. He does it, but he's not going to cross the line. You know, mm-hmm. he's not going to cross the line and, and kill kids because. That's not what America's about, and that's not what he's about as a yeah. representative of someone like, who believes in his country. It sounds like he he would do it if he was ordered to, but he's just he's he's doing whatever he can to correct correct to live in the world that he prefer to live in. Um, yeah. So after that, um, it shows him back at his desk and in in this his CIA offices, and a couple right off the bat, a couple of these couple of his co-workers are kind of giving him grief uh, for, like they say, um, coming to the party tonight, Clyde, and he says, I wasn't planning on it. 
and uh, they give him grief because obviously he's a guy who never goes to parties, and they make they make fun of him that uh, he must be standing up for the national anthem and saluting the flag, occasionally saying hell, but never fuck, and worshiping his mom's apple pie. And he, he kind of, you know, responds to them with uh, a witty remark, but you can tell it's kind of true yeah. in a way. And again, they're really doing a good job fleshing out the character, showing his relationship with his superiors, with his coworkers, how they view him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where the, the interesting stuff starts, yeah. where he gets back to his desk and there's a list of names on his computer. And this is really what starts the story. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have any thoughts so far? Characterization, anything? Uh, I think I'm good at the moment. Okay. Um, I'm definitely going to add a little bit in later. Uh Actually, I think I think uh, Clyde is that his first name or his last name? I forgot. I think it's, it says on his desk there. It's um, William Clyde. William Clyde. Yeah, uh, he has very like Captain America like ideals in this yeah. ver- in this very realistic world, which um, I think r- really fits in with a lot of the themes of the story, which we'll touch mm-hmm. on later. Um, no, that's a, and that's a good way to put it. Is he's yeah, he's a. So more of a realist Captain America without the super soldier serum, but mm-hmm. and he's willing, willing to go where... shoot people in the head yeah. during some wet works or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he gets this, na- this list of names on his computer, and he goes to um, <clears throat> start investigating them because he just assumes that they were put on his computer to, f- to follow up on as part of his job. And the first name is Joshua Markwitz, and he goes and he visits this guy in, he, he does a little research and finds out where he where he lives. And he is in a retirement home. So he goes and he visits him. While he's there, they tell him that he suffers from Alzheimer's. But they show in, in the panel where he's walking down to his room, there's a woman calling uh, someone. We don't know who the shadowy person is. But she calls and says, uh, yeah... Again, no doubt at all. So you know that that's something that's going to come back into it later on. Mm-hmm. So he goes and visits this guy, Joshua Markowitz. And um, he he thinks, at, at this point, Clyde thinks that this is tied into a different investigation. He, has, he doesn't know anything about the unknown soldier yet or anything like that. He thinks it's tied to some investigation about an organization called California First. And... Um, he starts talking to him, and he finds out that somebody else was there recently, also from the CIA talking to him, and he's, he's a little quizzical about that, and he, he says, what were you talking about? And this old guy, this old man in his 80s in the retirement home tells him, we talked about the soldier. Of course, we know who the soldier is, but to Agent Clyde here, he has no idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out, in, in talking to the to Markowitz for a while. Um, he tells him about his run-in with this character named the Soldier and how he was 18 years old when he was in the European theater and he went to Dachau, obviously the, one of the concentration camps, um, yeah. something you'd never forget no matter what. Mm. And, you know, it's certainly the unknown soldier's going to add to that. Uh, so he talks about them going into Dachau and seeing the 
the, the unknown soldiers showing up in uh, like a command jeep and yeah, right after they liberated it. And he's this big, hulking, intimidating figure with the, your, your classic unknown soldier face wrap. Yeah. And he, he's, you can just tell that this guy is in charge right away. He's, mm-hmm. he's got uh, command about him. And he walks in, and there's this big splash page where the soldier is, he, he's unbelievably pissed off. And the splash page is him standing amongst a, a, whole, a whole bunch of emaciated concentration camp bodies at Dachau. And the gist of the story is that the unknown soldier is, he is so pissed off about this that he runs and, and he grabs a uh, Thompson from some guy and mows down all of the German soldiers. And he says, um, one, first, first off, one of the officers that he's with starts saying that codename Unknown Soldier has totally fucking lost it. And the whole time the Unknown Soldier is mowing down these German officers that are trying to run away. And he said, um, that the officer says, for Christ's sake, if word gets out about this, and he says, it should, the world should know, if this is what our enemies do, if this is what America must fight, then we are always right. And anything we do is right. And so it, you kind of see right off the bat that the Unknown Soldier has a parallel to William Clyde in a way where he's saying he believes in his country, but unlike William Clyde, who's been brought up to believe in his country, the unknown soldier has been tested through, through wars and conflicts and going in and seeing something like Dachau, obviously you're, you're going to be, uh, as somebody who's, I own, um, actually own a book in there that was written by one of the liberators of Dachau. And it's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. In fact, I sh- I'll show it to you after we, okay. after we're done recording. Sounds good. But I mean, the shit that those guys walked into. Uh, my grandpa was in the Pacific, and he was one of the liberators of Santo Tomas. Yeah. Which is equally bad, but uh, it, it, it equally as bad an experience, I would, I would assume. But the stuff that they saw in Dachau and, and Auschwitz and Sobibor, you can imagine how that would shape. Y- using that as a story element. Is there are a few more powerful things than than that to shape someone's you know worldview and an outlook, Absolutely. and I, just like Nazis being like the greatest villains of all time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, using using an experience like that, I think is going to just shape a character better than most other things could. Absolutely, and like a huge, it, it's great that they started with World War Two here because I think in. Axel Alonso did a forward in my uh, in my paper book here, and uh, I think it was Axel Alonso. I think he edited this, um, and he was talking about how back in World War II, it was it was pretty clear who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. Mm-hmm. And in the current world, which is you know the late '90s at this point, um, that line is kind of less clear. You know, the things that the army are doing might be a little. A little questionable. Well, where, it's, you know, back in World War Two, you know, and the story, as we'll get to, gets progressively more stuck in the muck Definitely. about who's good and who's bad and who's directing things. But um, more than anything, I think you have to start at World War Two because the unknown soldier in the in the original stories when he came out in our army at war 
was a, a World War II character that was mm -hmm. very much like this, although certainly a lot tamer according to the standards of what DC was putting out in the 60s and 70s. But compared to some some of the stuff that that DC was putting out in, in their war books then, you had a, again, you had a lot of stuff that was very, very earnest. The stories were very well told. But then you also had kind of maybe goofier, sillier stories like the War the Time Forgot stuff and uh, I think it was Star Spangled War stories where they would have the dinosaurs and things like that. You'd have a dogfight between like a P-51 and a pterodactyl. Unknown Soldier tended to be more serious, more kind of ground level. Yeah. They would have, they would have um, you know, stories with consequences. Minor And some of these were, were 16... 22 page stories but you get to know some character and then that character doesn't make it out of the story they were really really great about creating these real quick small done in one stories that that wrapped up it had a beginning it had a middle and an end mm -hmm. but it was all in world war ii you know the unknown yeah. soldier there were some now there were later besides ennis's there were some later unknown soldier stories where they transported mm -hmm. him to different uh, different yeah. conflicts. I, I think, think New 52 tried to put him in the Suicide Squad for a little bit. Well, yeah. You know, um, and then there was whatever. there was a, <laughs> another Vertigo one, um, and I never read it, but I think it was like unknown a, a character named Unknown Soldier in South Africa or something. Okay. I had, but I, if I'm wrong, forgive me because I haven't read that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to, to your point, I think they starting in World War II mm -hmm. is linking it to its roots. And also linking it to the greatest conflict that the world has ever seen, and the most, really the most black and white conflict that the world has ever seen, and a conflict like that that could shape this character's moral worldview for the rest of the book and the rest of his life. Yeah, and like a huge, a huge theme of the book is talking about kind of the deterioration of morality mm -hmm. um, with war and just America in general, and it kind of. As we'll see, it kind of gradually goes goes bad. Uh, I just want to talk about this scene that we were talking about for a little bit. Um, just what, when they're at the concentration camp, it shows Markowitz as a soldier, and they go like a whole a whole two pages without actually showing the bodies. It starts off with like mm -hmm. just like a a view of him, just him and other soldiers, just looking out and just look completely traumatized. And uh, I just think that's, it's great how they, I mean, I don't want to say the word, they, they kind of tease it, but they're, they're building up to it. And when oh, they yeah. get to that splash page with all the bodies there, it's just, well, and it's you, really effective, even though you know what you're going to see. Yeah. You know how bad it's going to be when the transition panel from when he's talking to the 80 year old guy in the retirement home, and then it. The next panel right right next to that is him as an 18-year-old. Mm -hmm. You you just see going from from one where it's it's bright, kind of normal comic coloring to the whole flashback scene has this kind of dark red-tinged uh, coloring style to it. And you just know that it's... any Anyone who starts off a story with, I was 18 when I went into DAC, I was going to... There's nothing good that can come out of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. So we're ready to keep going. Yeah, jumping jumping past that, um, he he investigates this a little bit, goes back to his um, to this 
CIA headquarters and um, talks to a, and this is one of the things that I, that I always thought was kind of interesting and we'll touch on it a little bit more, but his coworker Wallace, who's a woman. Yes. And she, she's one of the people earlier on kind of giving him grief about not going to the party and saluting the flag and eating apple pie. But uh, she's there when he gets back to the office and he's doing a search for the unknown soldier and nothing comes up. But she asked him if he would want to go to this party with her. And he said yes. And um, she shows up at, well, actually, no, it was, I, sorry, I was wrong. Later on, she shows up at his apartment to ask him if he wants to go to the party with her. And um, earlier on in the book, they had shown this female agent, some sort of operative or assassin who gets called uh, after he goes to visit to visit uh, the old guy in the retirement home. And later on when he's back in his apartment and this co-worker of his shows up, it has this panel where she is set up on the rooftop next, next to his apartment building. Mm-hmm. And she's watching him with a some sort of sniper rifle and ends up shooting him. Well, well, she says she was told to give him the Frighteners, which would... Peter Jackson movie, right? Yeah, give him a Peter Jackson <laughs> DVD. I love that movie. It's a great movie. It's a good one, yeah. But she's told to give him just the Frighteners, which means fire fire a uh, a bullet through his, his window and you know blow something up to intimidate him to mm-hmm. move away from investigating the unknown soldier. And uh, what she doesn't know is that his co-worker showed up. So she ends up shooting this mug that he's holding to try to send this message, that the Frighteners, whatever you call it. Yeah. But ends up, right when she shoots the mug, Wallace opens the door and she gets shot and killed in his apartment building. Uh, I thought it was because it was sort of the, like I said, this book has a lot of stuff that you can kind of dredge into real, real life analogs. And uh, to me, that scene was sort of, uh, I don't know, it brought to mind something like Ruby Ridge. Where you know, and, and when Vicky Weaver got shot by the FBI agents who were shooting through the door to try to hit uh, Randy Weaver, but they shoot her instead. It was that sort of thing, and I wondered with because this came out twenty years ago now, and that came out after things like Ruby Ridge and and Waco and a lot of these things where people's mistrust and X, you know, even X Files, which had I think played off of a lot of the. A lot of the people's distrust of government, and this is without really getting into either political party, sprung out of, you look at like Watergate coming out of the the 70s, and that sort of started this distrust, not that it wasn't, a lot of distrust wasn't there, but kind of the general public's distrust of things, movies like All the President's Men, and um, Watergate sort of set the tone, but then you started having things like Ruby Ridge and Waco and then you had Oklahoma City and a lot of stuff where it was just I guess people didn't didn't trust their government and they didn't trust the people that were supposed to be the authorities over them and I think that that transcends both it, it transcends political parties in a way and um, this is what that's what that reminded me of was was Ruby Ridge, and I always wondered if if Ennis intended for that to be the case or not to bring up 
some kind of you know government cock up like that. I'm not a survivalist by any stretch of mm-hmm. the imagination. Yeah. But I'm just saying that's just, that's what it reminded me of. Okay. So I I don't know. Yeah. The, I'd like to ask him if I ever met mm-hmm. him. Something I want to bring up here. Um, I mean, it it definitely uh, shows multiple times during the series. Um, as people who read comics quite a bit, I'm sure that we we kind of overlook sound effects mm-hmm. that are put into there. You know, like a lot of times I read a book and don't even realize that there are sound effects. In this book, there are none whatsoever. You know, the the gun is shot here, and. The, the art kind of speaks for the sound itself. Um, yeah, it's a great is that, panel. Is that something that's in a lot of Garth Ennis' work? Do you think that was a choice that he made? That's a good question. I don't. I don't know. Okay. Because like something I've. What What are your opinions on sound effects? Um, I guess it. If it fits the story, I have no problem with it. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, a good sound effect could be. For instance, if it was a war, let's say it's a, a World War II book, and you're supposed to hear, maybe there's a, a panel where some characters are out in the open and they hear, uh, I don't know, some bombers approaching or something. Yeah. Would would it make sense to have an, a, a following panel where it shows the the planes creeping up on them? Or would it be better to just have one of the characters maybe look up and you hear like a whir in the background or something? Maybe the top of the panel is like whir, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're hearing you're hearing propellers, you know, and and that's what is. I, I think a sound effect like that is going to be one thing. I think the definitely people's, and that's that's necessary to show what's happening, right? But people's go to I think sound effects, uh, and I I would say to most comics detriment are the the old Adam West rest in peace uh, this mm-hmm. week but the old uh, Batman 66 bow pop zam type of thing where you yeah. every time you hit somebody i don't think there's a place for those sound effects anymore um, but i think sound effects in comics like i described if it's something that's necessary for the plot it's totally useful mm-hmm. but do i think that this panel in an unknown soldier needed any sound effects no because the art is going to convey what happened better than anything that any sound effect you could slam Absolutely. over the, the panel. Yeah. I what do you sometimes, think? Sometimes, I mean, it really depends on the art itself. Because art, I mean, it isn't really a science mm-hmm. or anything. I mean, some things totally might might work with sound effects. Um, but I think a lot of, probably especially mainstream books, kind of just use them because it's part of comics and they mm. kind of think of it as something that they should use. I mean, a script I wrote recently, I kind of, kind of just felt like I had to put them in there. And then I went back later and I thought like, I'm pretty sure this will be a lot more effective if I just don't have it in there. Do you think it's something where you might have it in your script to do, you give it to the artist, you get it back and it's so good that like conditionally you, you might say there might be a sound effect do your best or mm. it'll it'll be a sound effect depending on how you draw the panel or something like that like yeah i think that maybe that's an area where you want to trust your artist definitely i think i think a lot of times that sound effects are used it's kind of undermining the artist's ability to mm-hmm. show what's going on 
Um, I mean, it's probably not what they what they mean to do, but um, I think it kind of distracts from the art and uh, everything that can do. But I mean, have you read Scott Cloud's Understanding Comics? Yeah, but it was like okay, it was like fifteen twenty years. ago. I mean, ago. you'll understand what I'm saying anyway. I mean, comics is all about filling in the blank mm -hmm. with your imagination. And, I mean, usually that's in between panels, just imagining movement and everything, but, I mean, in this, I think silent, like, silent gunshot panels like this, for example, they're really useful because your your brain is coming up with a sound effect for that gunshot that's going to be a lot more, a lot more effective than some blam or boom or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I mean, and there's even, there's context. even little detail, like... The gun that she's using in the previous page, even though it's it's not something that's emphasized at all, it's suppressed. You can see it has a suppressor mm -hmm. on it, uh, so it's it's probably going to make that, that but... you know that yeah. typical. You would in your mind you're going to hear that typical movie silencer sound when mm -hmm. it gets shot. You're not going to hear a gunshot, so that's something that's even going to be harder to convey with the sound effect. If you put a pow or a, something in there, it's it's not what's meant to be it's not the sound that's meant to be heard out of that gun yeah so mm -hmm. i that's that's just i guess that's a little thing too that that helps going from having that to the silent panel where the mug the mug that he's holding explodes and then you see blood coming where wallace gets hit there probably wouldn't be sound other than the glass breaking and that is mm -hmm. conveyed by the glass blowing apart in his hand yeah no, it's a cool observation, though. Yeah, thanks. Um, that leads to the kind of a weird thing later on. We'll, we can just jump ahead to that where right. it creates this kind of weird thing where this woman that he was in the office with, Wallace, all of a sudden people think that they were an item. And I yeah. think one of one of the coworkers later on says something like, uh, so you two were fucking or something? And mm -hmm. Do you remember that? He's like, actually, we weren't. <laughs> yeah, we weren't. She just, she was nice to me and came to my apartment once. Um, but that left an impression. Yeah, it did. Later. But she, what ends up happening later on is whether it is a figment of his imagination or it's actually some kind of ghost, it's most likely a figment of his imagination, um, Wallace keeps showing up at mm -hmm. strange times. And he'll have conversations with her in, in a car, in a building, wherever. Um, so obviously her getting shot was something that had a, a very big effect on him. You know, it was somebody who showed him a little bit of kindness. And he's a guy who probably was very uptight and, and didn't have a lot of friends and certainly probably didn't have a lot of girlfriends. And all of a sudden a pretty woman shows up and asks him to go to a party and then she gets killed for just being in his house. Yeah. And that's something that's going to stay with you, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so that, it, it's not just kind of a one-off event. It, mm -hmm. it definitely has it's, repercussions. It speaks a lot about the characters because, you know, as someone who's experienced a little bit of loneliness and isolation, sure. um, it just, it says a lot that that, like, probably like three-minute interaction, just someone, someone giving him the time of day. Um, to invite him to a party and, you know... And I taking the time to show up at his house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they, they don't even blatantly say it at first, but it, it just talks talks a lot about just this guy's place in the world and how mm -hmm. 
not, not only his ideals, but just, you know, his personality just doesn't really fit in the world that he's in right now. Right, right. He's he's kind of almost too good for them. Mm-hmm. But not that he would think that. So he goes back to the office and he keeps investigating this, the names on this list. And um, he goes to visit this other guy. who Every time he goes to visit one of these people, he gets another piece of a piece or two of information and he still has no idea who put this list of names on his computer but he's just investigating them and he goes to this other guy named martin fuchs who asks him if he's from colonel booth's department and he just kind of plays along and he says uh correct uh, colonel booth sent you to see me now he goes to see him and of course just like with the older guy um he ends up ha- telling him about his experience with the Unknown Soldier, which was in um, in Iran in '53, mm-hmm. and um, the soldiers the soldier has this guy take him to see um, the Shah, and he says, um, "Let's see here." He goes up to him and he says, uh, "I'm an uh, let's see here." The guy the Shah says, "Who are you?" And he says, "I'm an American who wants to know why you insult his country." And he says, what? He says, by what right do you refuse us? By what prerogative do you reject our aid? You will order Mohammed uh, Mossadegh to step down. You will rule your country directly and absolutely. You will follow the edicts of the United States government 100% or we will bomb Iran back into the desert and I will come for you. And and then this guy that he's talking to, who's explaining this flashback, says, uh, that was that. One look into those eyes and there's no question the Shah would do anything but get rid of Mossadegh. And um, when he was leaving, he said something about what right did Americans have to give to give him orders in his own country, to which the unknown soldier says, the moral right. And that's the end yeah. of that, that flashback. Yeah, it was no, a very quick one. But after he leaves, this same assassin shows up that mm-hmm. took the pot shot at, at him and ended up hitting yeah. Wallace and kills that old guy. Screwball is her name, I think. Screwball, yeah. yeah. And she ends up, and then you find out also that she killed the old guy in the retirement home too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, as he's driving to the next name on the list that he had, he's he's got, he starts having an interaction with Wallace. Yeah, and it's one of those times where she, like, she's telling him he's crazy, um, and he's not really. <laughs> he's just kind of playing along and talking to her. Mm-hmm. But he gets to the next place, and the guy. There's a and there's a bunch of corpses there already, uh, so somebody has already beaten him to to the punch on this one. Um, then he ends up then he ends up going to the next name on the list. So he, he, somebody beat him to the punch on one. He ends up going to another one, and um, I think before we get to that, we'll jump up and get another beer. Yes, we will. Okay. <laughs> After we've gotten proper libations again, um, we left off where he had he'd gotten beat to the punch at one of the names on his list and found up or found a bunch of corpses there. So he ends up going to um, to this house in Alaska, and it's a guy wearing flannel with a big big beard. Yep. And he talks about oh, it, and you can kind of see what's going on here. This guy is 
talking about running into, uh, it's, I, I guess he's going to say it better than I can. So he says, um, Clyde says, I don't think this is exactly about you. And the guy says, you're goddamn right it's not. It's about codename Unknown Soldier, Vietnam, 1970, and a little piece of fucking genocide just over the Cambodian border. So you know that's not going to be great. But long story short, and we can talk a little bit about some of the history of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, one of the one of the bits of the Unknown Soldier was that he was a guy who was he, he would always have the bandages on. You didn't you never knew who he was, mm-hmm. but he would often sh- he would often show up undercover, almost like a, a Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. He'd be wearing masks over yeah. his face to look like somebody different, and he he would. It didn't matter. He could look like a an officer. He could look like a mm-hmm. French partisan. But whatever whatever served the story, he was undercover. He was the unknown soldier. I mean, he's for those who have seen Sam Raimi's film Dark Man. He's he is Dark Man. He yeah. is the exact same character, except you know he came first. Yeah, very <laughs> very first. But this guy's story is uh, that they were. They were or basically these guys in, in uh, Vietnam were ordered to burn up a, a clear out a couple of villages and basically torch everybody in the villages. And th- these guys wouldn't do it. Um, they were gonna. They were they were gonna not follow through at their order, and all of a sudden somebody shows up, and it is General Westmoreland. Who was the the commanding officer, the the uh, guy in charge of Vietnam at that time? Okay. Walks yeah. into his his uh, building and starts chewing him out and telling him that uh, he is to kill all the that he used to pass along the orders to the guys in the field to kill all of these prisoners and then withdraw. And uh, he says, you know, how could he? How could he say no to? He's, he's not going to say no to Westmoreland. It'd be like saying no to Eisenhower in World War Two. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the this guy that he's talking to, that Clyde is talking to, who's telling the flashback, says that he told me later it took two hours. He's talking about one of his friends who was actually killing everybody on the the other side. And uh, he says John lost four of his people. You know where he is now chained up in a mental institution because he's been trying to chew his wrists open for 70 years. So, again, we go from... Yeah, go ahead. We go from uh, kind of an, an escalating... We start with World War II, where we were... And there's always people with revisionist history, but we were clearly on the right side, you know? Yeah. Now, the interference in Iran, that's something where... It starts getting into a, a real gray area, and certainly, Vietnam was not known for being a, a clear-cut good guy, bad guy conflict by any stretch of the imagination. And that's one of the reasons that I always thought that um, anytime they tried to take the Punisher out of Vietnam, that it was such a big mistake. You had so many things that happened on both sides in Vietnam, and you got to remember that. Most of the guys that were there were there because of the draft. These weren't people that wanted to be there, you know, and they didn't they didn't want to be in Vietnam. Uh, 
but these soldiers were were drafted and so you had for every horrible thing that you hear about Vietnam you hear about the Hanoi Hilton you hear about the treatment that POWs got driving bamboo under their fingernails and all the different terrible ways that um, that they were killed in captivity you also had things like um, what happened with uh, William Calley when they slaughtered that village they killed all the men women and children and but even in that you had you had those guys that went nuts but you also had uh, there was the the My Lai massacre but you also had guys that I think got I, I believe got the Medal of Honor for trying to stop that conflict you had like a helicopter pilot who set his helicopter down in between the troops that were firing some of the villagers so it's just something where you had heroes on both sides and you had people that just were not the situation that they were put in was completely nuts it was madness for them and how do you deal with something like that how do you deal with with you don't know if the old lady that's coming up to you out of a rice paddy is just coming up to say thank you or if she's got a, a bomb strapped to her you know and she's going to blow up you and your buddies mm -hmm. and you don't know if that six-year-old boy walking up to you if he's got a bomb in his basket or if, if, if it's loaded with rice you have no idea and so those guys the stuff that they had to do it was not and that's happening you know in, in war since war began but uh it certainly was not a clear-cut thing and i think that's sort of the theme of the unknown soldier and the theme of this book is that people do horrible shit and you sometimes you don't even know the reason for doing it you know or you do it for the wrong reason and um i think that the, it's it's certainly reflected well in here where the unknown soldier is a guy if if you were influenced by the stuff that he had seen in world war ii then you're going to have a different approach and, and you think that your country is always always right and uh, even when they're maybe necessarily not now this fictional cambodian massacre that they talk about in, in the book we know that that that's it's completely made up but it's certainly something that that fits mm -hmm. it fits the story well and thematically it's something that you know could have happened but the most important part of this whole flashback is where this guy who's telling the flashback walked into he got drunk and he was going to go in and tell off westmoreland but he walks into what, what's supposed to be westmoreland's uh, building and it's the unknown soldier in there kind of uh, in the shadows standing in the shadows and there's a uh, Westmoreland's face much like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible laying off on the ground and um, so he, he's that was this guy's running with the unknown soldier but shortly after he tells Clyde this story he gets shot in the head by this assassin who's followed him there named Screwball and um, yep. That leads to a gunfight between the two of them, and uh, he ends up getting kind of the upper hand on her and holding her at gunpoint, and uh, he ends up having, I think he kind of ties her up and starts questioning her, and she, she ends up um, sort of becoming an, an ally a little bit because they send a kill team, whoever's in charge of this whole shebang 
whoever was in charge of sending Screwball to kill him sends some some special ops team to kill both of them. Mm-hmm. And so they end up sort of teaming up against them. And um, they take out this... Well, she does most of the work, but they end up taking out this team and deciding that uh, even though she killed Wallace and she was there to kill him, that since they're both targets now, that uh, I guess they'd be better off working together for, you know, to, to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so she starts giving him a little bit of information and uh, it's kind of funny because it shows her in the backseat when he's talking to this figment of his imagination that is Wallace. Yeah. And uh, obviously he looks a little bit nuts, but Screwball is a little bit nuts too, so oh, definitely. it doesn't yeah. really matter. What are your thoughts on Screwball so far? Um, definitely an interesting character. I mean, at this point in the story, you don't really go much into her background or anything, uh, but I guess I'll just say it right away since we'll go to it later. I think they mentioned that she was taken from like a mental institute or yeah. something like that. And uh, when she, I think like when she was a kid, right? Yeah, something like that. But I just, I found that very, very interesting because I mean, th- this story is taking, taking place in this corrupted world where mm. you have to make these, you know, you have to make these terrible decisions sometimes. And, uh, I mean, they had someone who was literally messed up in the head carrying out some of these things. Sure. Um, and I, I, I just found that really, really interesting how they, well, if you're going to have, that. if you're going to have professional killers, you don't want a normal person doing it. You don't want no. someone who's got a normal idea of morality going mm-hmm. out to just kill whatever list of people you give them. You have to have screwed up people. You have yeah. to have sociopaths, people that have no or people that have no emotion at all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. It, it's yeah. it's a neat aspect of the character. And I find this, th- this is a pretty cool part of the story, because it, it kind of makes you just Clyde working with Screwball at this point, after she had killed, you know, a bunch of, you know, old guys from the war and killed Wallace and everything. Um, just ki- kind of gives you the sense of, you know, that, that Clyde is kind of, kind of becoming a little more little little more corrupt. He's he's like he's venturing going, into the gray area. Yeah. Even though um, it's it's presented as being purely pragmatic. That he you know it's it's gonna be better for him to team up with her because it's gonna help him achieve his end and help keep him alive a little bit more to have a trained killer on you know working with him. They're they're kind of working to the same end, but you certainly get the feeling that it's a temporary alliance. Mm-hmm. You, you have the flashbacks that are kind of kind of showing the decline and morality of the unknown soldier. Right, right. And at the same time, you're... I mean, you're not really seeing de- decline in morality with Clyde, but he's mm-hmm. kind of... He's, he's falling down into some sort of spiral. So it's it's kind of cool seeing, seeing the story progress down for both of them. Well, and something to, to take away from the people on the list is that these people are put on this list chronologically. You know, the first li- the first name on the list was from World War II. The second name on the list was somebody who had information about the soldier in Iran. 
the third name on the list while that person got killed. We don't know. Was it, what did they have? They have something to do with, you know, uh, uh, running into the soldier in Korea. Who knows? The fourth name on the list had a, a run in in Vietnam. So it's chronological and we're creeping closer to modern day, but every story that's told veers a little bit more away from, you know, that, that origin is we keep the horse that we keep beating that world war two story in the mm -hmm. concentration camp where there's no question that we were like, if you were in that concentration camp and you had a Thompson and all those SS officers were right there. Yeah. Would you, I mean, mm -hmm. you look around and you see it's like, I couldn't blame anyone for doing that. Yeah, you know, he's I, not supposed to be doing it, but like, no, it's, it's still, it, it makes sense. Cause these are, you know, it's like the most horrific shit that's ever happened in yeah. the entire world. And I mean, I, I know there were some, some quote-unquote Nazis who were kind of like forced into it, but they, they still did terrible well, shit. Well, you, you know? your German, so your average German soldier was, man, I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but <laughs> yeah, you had a lot of, you had a lot of German soldiers and guys that were farmers and, you know, they had no... They didn't care about the ideological uh, associations of the National mm. Socialist Party. So, yeah, those guys weren't. But on the other hand, a lot of those German soldiers were tough because those guys had been, yet a lot of them, especially if they were officers or older guys, they'd been, you know, soldiers in World War One. They had been in the Spanish Civil War. These are guys that were no strangers to combat, you know. And, but, but again, you're, you're, you're correct that a lot of them were, um, we're not fighting for the ideology of, mm -hmm. of the Nazis. I mean, there's a clear I'm not line saying that's an excuse at right, all, but, right. but the mean, guy, but remember there's a big difference between your average German soldier who's in the, I don't know, fighting on the Eastern front or freezing to death mm -hmm. in Stalingrad and your SS officer who worked at yeah. a concentration camp. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the first, I think that first flashback, one of the, one of the one of the guys says we we just guard, right? And well, uh, that's so that's something that's really it's interesting because it's still going on. You know, they're still finding they're identifying guys that are from mm -hmm. that were camp guards or yeah. back when I was in school, we were we were kind of following this case. Um, really, with, with, with someone who was 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 it a, the Georgievic uh, guy? Oh, the I guy. Don't know. Who, Okay. It was my freshman year, so it was like the guy who got sent back to he, he got sent to Germany to to be put on trial, and I think he died. Maybe I think he died while he was on trial. Yeah, but we were we were like trying to figure out, you know, it was it was so long ago. Like, should should we forgive this or or not? But, I don't. Uh, I you know, it's it's such. Mm -hmm. I don't think so, and I think that that's why I've seen some great movies where. And, and this is stuff with, I think it was one I saw recently with Martin Landau. I can't remember the name. But it had Martin Landau and it had uh, Christopher Plummer. Where Christopher Plummer was, starts off the movie as a, someone who thought he was, a, uh, someone who had been in a concentration camp. And he's hunting down um, this officer who was the head of this camp. And... Um, I don't want to. I don't want to give away the ending because it's actually a really, really good movie. Okay. But it, it was, to me, it was more fascinating to watch a bunch of guys in their mid to late eighties 
operate sort of a geriat kind of a geriatric sp spy movie than anything else just because of the the subject matter at hand and you got to think 10 years from now we're not going to have any of these guys left mm -hmm. and this type of thing that's why this again the nazis and what went on in world war ii in europe was it lends itself they are the best villains they are i mean it was you look at the eugenics programs that they had and you mm -hmm. look at the final solution and um everything from liquidating polish ghettos to uh to mengele's experiments in auschwitz it was there was so much sadistic evil stuff that was done in the name of progress and when that goes i think we we like to think that we have evolved as a society as a world but that's why those movies where there's some 92 year old nazi officer who got away i think it's such a, a captivating and fascinating thing because we know that in a few years they're all going to be gone but you still have i think most people still have that you want justice you know and you want to catch these sons of bitches before they die and they're taken by mm -hmm. old age catch the guys and and it leads to such good good story material that i i think that uh in a couple of years when all those guys are gone that uh it's going to be ashamed to have lost all the great veterans that we have but story-wise there's also going to be uh i guess a kind of a dearth of possible topics like that but there's a see there's a tangent yeah absolutely absolutely and I was, I was just even, I was just saying that whole thing about, you know, Nazi soldiers yeah. who, I was, I was just saying that as a devil's advocate thing, but you know, we went into there, but yeah, like that, that first flashback is really, you know, it, it almost gives you a sense of satisfaction. Hell yeah, it does. Him, right. Seeing him just, you know, shoot out a bunch of Nazis because, I mean, wh whether they were forced into it or not, like, you know, that's, they were doing mm. terrible things. Um... And then just, you know, over time, well, you have him intimidating that, uh, I forgot what it was called. Was, it, was he like a religious leader or something? The Shah? The Shah, yeah. Of Iran? Yeah. He was the leader I, of the see, country. I don't, I don't know. I don't know much about Well, and this, stuff. and this is, a, the cool thing with this now, and, and I don't, I was going to save this topic for the end, but we've said that, um, Clyde works for the CIA. Mm -hmm. Well, the CIA and all the, all this stuff where things kind of start going wrong in the book, these sort of uh, gray area operations that the soldiers are part of. It's a, there's a lot of stuff where I think the the big theme of the book is America and the ideology and what America stands for is as great as it has ever been, but it can easily be co-opted. It can very easily be co-opted. And I, I, my takeaway was that we're not fighting a war against evil um, in, in this book. What we're doing is we're fighting a war for the CIA's best interest. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's why I said that this is going to be, it's going to be so hard not to jump into politics, but I I kind of want to keep it more Go vague it. than anything else. <laughs> I, ju I, I just think that it is, um, 
it's something where the the further you get away from World War II in this book, the more shady shit there is. Mm-hmm. And I, I and again, I think that it the end of the book does a really great job of showing that your ideologist who or your I, ideologue, I should say, ideologist. I don't think that's a word. You know. Just, just you put enough beers in us and we'll just make up whatever word we want. Yeah. But your ideologue can still believe and make the right decision because of how much they believe in America and they believe in mm-hmm. what it stands for. Going up against somebody who's taken that exact same route and gone the opposite way and become mm-hmm. a cynic and become someone who and someone who has been co-opted just like the country has been you know does it make sense yeah okay you're making sense okay good 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 good, good i just want to talk about this one moment right yeah, here please do. um when uh he's talking to uh not wallace well screwballs in the back uh it, it's it, it's kind of interesting because i mean i i imagine her as a figment of his imagination mm-hmm. yeah me too she, me too like most of the time she's always calling him crazy and there's there's just this there's this, there are these two panels that I just found really, really effective. And she says, you are a hopelessly incurable. No, a delusional romantic. I asked you to come to a party, Clyde. I smiled at you. How out of that do you manage to turn me into your ideal woman? How could you think you would know me so well? And there's just a panel of him. He looks, he looks kind of mentally troubled. He's just Mm-hmm. Looking straight ahead at the road, and it just has three dots. And he said it was a nice smile, and just just back on what I said before, just like his his sense of isolation and stuff. Um, oh sure, that was just a perfect depiction of it. And uh, then there's just this page wide thin panel of them driving, and I, th- I think Wallace just says I give up, which it, yeah, it's just great. No, I found I that very effective. There's just this whole book makes a very good use of not only just silent panels, but you know, panels that have less dialogue. No, I I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll and see more of that to jump into pages. to jump into the next thing. Now, Screwball, obviously, that now that they've teamed up, mm-hmm. she's somebody who's plugged directly into what's going on, so she's able to give him some information and. Um, they show up at the guy who's been pulling all the strings, who's been sending Screwball to kill these people and to kill Clyde. Some of the strings. Some, Well, some of the strings. But they show up at his his house, wherever it is, and um, we have another one of those kind of soundless panels where, but this one, if you pay attention, where she shoots the the butler right in the head when he opens the door, Screwball does, but her her pistol's not silenced, so you can imagine a loud gunshot to mm-hmm. this one if you uh, so desire. Anyway, so the, this guy who's sort of a... He's a heavier set black guy, probably in his early 60s, um, comes out and he sees that it's Screwball and he's terrified. And he starts, he starts talking about yeah, here's here's where he says she was recruited out of a lunatic asylum. Um, but he's but then Clyde says, but she's a Girl Scout next to the man you've been protecting, isn't she? 
And this is where the general says, um, comparing Screwball to the Unknown Soldier, you may as well say Jeffrey Dahmer looks good next to Genghis Khan. It's different levels, it's different worlds. I should know I'm the only man alive on this earth who's seen him go to war. Now you get your big flashback. And we jump forward again into Nicaragua. And he says, uh, I had a pretty good Vietnam with Marine Recon, uh, which, by the way, Frank Castle was Marine Recon. Mm -hmm. um, and by 84, I'd made major doing a lot of work for the company in Nicaragua. So he says, um, Washington wasn't uh, uh, impressed by our progress in disrupting the new government's reforms. They wanted results. They send, and, and this is another thing where I just noticed this as a big Garth Ennis fan, where um, they're overlooking, they're kind of on a hill overlooking this Nicaraguan uh, little village. And this guy says, they finished the hospital 10 days ago, Colonel. And, uh, and this is, um, this is, it's some, some Delta Force team and the Unknown Soldier. And he says, good. And then he says, give me the 60. Well, if you've read Born, which is the four-issue miniseries that Garth Ennis wrote, that's kind of the prequel to his Punisher Max run, okay. the third issue of Born starts, or it ends, with this giant Viet Cong attack on the firebase that Frank Castle is at that point in command of. And the last panel of the book was Frank Castle kind of grimly looking on and he says, give me the 60, which is no. what's going on right here. Uh, the M60. So anyways, uh, he says the guy that's this general that's telling the flashback to Clyde and Screwball says that he went into the hospital with the M60 and didn't stop until he'd capped off five full belts. Then he had me march the Contras in. And who Now, we know that this is a soldier with some kind of disguise on, but he says that you do that, whatever they build, whatever they give, however they try to worm their way into the nation's heart, this is what you do. You continue, continue until the people understand the Sandinistas can give them nothing that the Contras cannot take away. And no governments can survive in Nicaragua without the backing of the United States. And then it, it pans to, I guess as well as you can do a pan in comic books. The next panel is, but it, you know what? This is kind of a, this is a great example because it, the top panel is the unknown soldier pointing directly at the reader. Mm -hmm. And then the bottom panel is the carnage left over from yeah. him using a, you know, this, this 50 cal to blow to hell everybody mm -hmm. else in there. And um, he says, uh, is that a 30 cal? I don't know. See, I wouldn't know. Anyways, <laughs> after that, uh, hold on. You're going to look it up? You know, I should know this. While you look it up, I just want to comment on this flashback. And you said we know that this guy is the unknown soldier, even though... You know, he has a face mm -hmm. and everything. I just find it really interesting how Killian Plunkett is able to... 762, sorry. Okay. It's it's okay. I apologize. It's okay. It's, it's interesting how just placing that emphasis on this character in the panels at this point in the story just lets you know and insinuates that this is the unknown soldier. As opposed to just this this guy. Well, he's he's kind of a hulking 
intimidating figure, mm-hmm. and he has... Definitely. I mean, he's, like, probably a foot taller than most people. <laughs> for sure. And he's kind of got this intimidating jawline, and... Mm-hmm. You're, I think you're supposed to be able to tell that it's him for the reader. Oh, absolutely. I just think it's interesting how how naturally it comes to you. Absolutely. So then the, the general's continuing telling his story, and he says, After that, they hunted us with everything they had, and they caught us about five clicks from our dust-off. And it shows it shows them getting completely taken apart, um, completely taken apart in this in this fight. And uh, the guy, the younger version of the guy telling the story, mm-hmm. gets shot. And then it shows the soldier who earlier on in this in this the previous page gets shot in the face. Well, this bullet tore off whatever mask he was wearing and now it's right and now it's the unknown soldier and he is pissed off and uh he's still got his he's still got his gun and he starts firing and the guy says they they came at us for two hours they outnumbered us 50 to 1 and he killed them and killed them and killed them i was in so much pain i could barely shoot straight but i don't think i was even needed they tried out flanking us, but he laced the jungle with bullets and grenades, and they had to quit. They charged us flat out, but he cut them down one at a time. They sat back and mortared us, but when the smoke cleared, he was still there. He was hit a half dozen times, but all he did was bleed and roar and keep on shooting. He emptied every weapon we had or could take from the dead, and then he beat the last three men to death with a rifle butt. I remember looking at him and thinking, what are you? And then there's this panel that just shows a real messed up unknown soldier just firing an AK, mm-hmm. and then the as as the uh, general and it kind of goes back to him in present day says war. Yeah. So he's saying, "What are you?" And then he says, "He is war." And that that last panel with uh, the unknown soldier just shooting, he has he has a little bit of his mask still still on just him, just a teeny tiny and bit. kind of peeling off. And I just that panel really stuck with me because I kind of saw it as as symbolism for his humanity, just kind of drifting away. Um, I mean, he's, yeah, just as the next panel say, you know, he's got a little ideology left, you know, over time, he's just becoming less, less of a human and more as a, more of a force, force of nature. But then you go to the next page and the soldier says, I have orders to execute anyone who lays eyes on me during a covert operation but I will not take the life of an American soldier. He helps him up. And he says, he took me back to Washington, had me assigned to his command. Uh, Nominally, I was still with the Corps, but from then on, I was a company man 100%. So company, of course, is the CIA. Mm -hmm. And um, he says, I think he trusted me. He'd see me in action, knew I didn't scare easily. Clyde says, what is he? Some kind of superhuman assassin? And he says, no. He's 75 years old, Agent Clyde. He's in ultimate human condition. He's been up to his neck in the bloodiest, darkest, most shameful corners of the U.S. foreign policy since 1942. But he is just a man. And uh, then they start talking about, and this is where it, it, I mean, it leads, it starts leading up, everything sort of lead up, led up to this. But mm-hmm. he mentions, uh, and now Anderson, we mentioned earlier that there was somebody that kind of, started this whole thing off when Clyde went to the retirement home that the secretary called and said there's another one. Well, there was somebody named Anderson who had started looking into this and talked to all the same people that Clyde had talked to. And he says Anderson was, uh, this is the, the general telling Clyde this, he says, 
Anderson was once a friend of mine. I have no idea how he got the list or saw fit to question the men on it. So we still don't know who gave Clyde the list. And now we know that there was somebody else who was looking at, who was following up the same list. And we don't know who gave him the list either. We know it wasn't this guy who's pulling all the strings now. Mm -hmm. Or we thought was pulling the strings. He called me one night towards the end, almost hysterical, and said he was going to blow the entire thing wide open. He said, I know what happened at Winterthor. They found his body the next day, but we didn't kill him. And then Clyde says, Winterthor? And the general says, means nothing to me. It's not on file either. Uh, Anderson got, was buried at Arlington, and, um, and then Screwball shoots him. And, uh, and that's pretty much the end of, the, of his visit with that guy. So they go to Arlington. Now, Arlington, I think that the symbolism here is, is unbelievable because Arlington, of course, was, if you want to talk about the, the history of an important American landmark, mm -hmm. you go back to Arlington. I think, now, Arlington, I, I think, was at one point owned by Robert E. Lee's wife's family. Okay. But obviously, Arlington is is Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah, and I was actually I was there as a kid. So. Were you really? Yeah, yeah, and I I got to see the uh, the little the ceremony that they did for the the tomb of the unknown soldier, which is obviously yep. kind of the idea that this is that the original unknown soldier is kind of based around. Um, and that's actually shown in the first first page which we right. didn't really talk much about but we'll get back to that later jfk's buried there i think yeah yeah um I think I saw so they, they have the eternal flame uh-huh anyway so they, they go to arlington which is like the kind of the most earnest symbol of american heroism and uh they they start digging up this anderson and uh screwball says are you sure this is a good idea to which Clyde says, I'm sure it's an absolutely terrible idea. All I can do is hope Anderson hid something on his body, maybe something to do with this Winter Thor. So it's kind of looking like everything in this story is leading up to whatever Winter Thor was. Mm -hmm. And finding out what Winter Thor is was something that drove this Anderson character. It sounds kind of like the knowledge of it drove him nuts. Like it drove him almost insane. Yeah. Kind of broke him. Um, Screwball goes back to the car while, while he's digging up Anderson's grave and very promptly gets knifed by someone who turns out to be the unknown soldier. And that leads to the unknown soldier standing over the grave that mm -hmm. Clyde is digging up. So now this, yeah. and it's finally just... led up to... Yeah, the whole, the whole book's led up to these two meeting. Mm -hmm. And... It, he's got this sort of uh, this this monologue races Clyde that is he says I'm sorry Anderson I thought you could help me I thought there might be something but if there was they found it I'm sorry and then he looks up and the soldier's standing there in the rain it's pouring rain this whole time and he's holding a, a revolver and he says I'm sorry too yeah and this is just such it's just a great moment they they really use I mean for a book called The Unknown Soldier they really use the titular character sparingly yeah he's hardly he's hardly in it <laughs> yeah and i mean you know th there's part of me that's like come on i want to see more of them but it just makes a moment like this at the end it's kind of the jaws effect it's yeah yeah it's right just, it's it's so effective um 
Oh, you know what we didn't mention about the... We talked about Killian Plunkett, but the covers were by Tim Bradstreet. Yes, they were, who is amazing. He is great. Has Bradstreet ever done interiors? I think he's... Yeah, I think he has. Okay. Uh, for what I couldn't tell you, though, off the top of my head. All right. But that's cool. one of the one of the things that really, really... I Besides using an entire line of dialogue, like Give Me the 60, um, if you want to compare this to Garth Ennis' Punisher Max run, which also had a guy, a, a character who is in that run, he's I think he's 60, 67 or 68. Okay. And he is... Frank Castle is about as close to a peak human as you can get, very much like the Unknown Soldier. He's been up to his neck in shit since he was in, you know, Marine Recon and did a bunch of tours in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. The covers were by Tim Bradstreet. Uh, he's great. Which, yeah, he's, <laughs> I mean, it's it's very, you, you can see a, a definite, I think, influence, and I think Garth Ennis took some of the same ideas from Unknown Soldier and used them in Punisher Max. Okay, cool. When did Punisher Max start? Must have been 2000, maybe 2006 or 7. Okay. Cool. We're going to research that and uh, we're going to take another quick break, but we'll be back with the results of that uh, research. And we are back. What are our search results? Our search results were... Sprecher's Special Amber and Punisher Max uh, by Garth Ennis started coming out in 2004. Okay. Okay. Let's go back to Unknown Soldier. Mm -hmm. So we've had the climactic meeting between Clyde and the Unknown Soldier. It's finally happened. And I th Clyde kind of asked the, the question that probably was the viewer's perspective, and he says, why are we here? And the soldier says... Because one man in the right place at the right time can make a difference and win a war. And that's why we're here. So they start talking a little bit and... Oh, and by the way. Yeah. I did some research. And Go ahead. That, that thing that you just said, uh -huh. that the Unknown Soldier said, I mean, it's also the first line of the book. That is actually something that... Well, we don't know who the Unknown Soldier is. Mm -hmm. For sure, in the original series, but um, it's kind of kind of mentioned. I mean, kind of uh, insinuated that it might be this guy named I forgot what his name was, but that's something that that guy yeah I remember his brother says to him right I remember yeah I know what you're talking about I've I've got pretty much like the entire original series in the you know DC would put out their showcase reprints mm -hmm. there were sort of the equivalent of Marvel's Essentials where you had a a ton of black and white issues reprinted on newsprint or kind of lower quality paper. Yeah. So I've read through chronologically all the Unknown Soldier okay. stuff in that way. Yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking mm -hmm. about where they alluded to it. It could be this guy. Yeah. And that's that. That's kind of cool. I mean, if, if you do think that it's him, um, it's just kind of interesting because that same accident that killed his brother also deformed his face. Right. Um, and it's kind of interesting seeing him repeat those words through this whole journey that he has throughout the war, um, doing this. And, uh, just before I forget to mention it, um, I saw this, this interesting theory that some people had about the old Unknown Soldier comics, um, that the Unknown Soldier was actually, like, the reader of the book. Hmm. 
Um, just because they, they don't show his face or anything. Right. Um, they, they don't say his name. Like, nobody knows his name except for, except for him. I mean, if he even knows. I don't know what his deal is. But, um, I found that kind of interesting because back to Scott McCloud's understanding comics, um, he was kind of talking about how characters with, like, less, less facial features, you're able to kind of project yourself onto them. Which is why in, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of anime and stuff, um, you know, some of the character might, characters might have some more simple facial features, and you kind of project yourself onto them mm-hmm. and kind of put yourself in their place. And I, I, just, I just think it's kind of interesting, you know, because he, he has his face wrapped up in bandages, so, I mean, he can well, be and anyone. They, and to your point earlier, they do say, or the soldier says, I lost my face to enemy action. The same action that cost the life of my brother. It was he who told me that one man could make a difference, and only when he had gone did I see the truth in his words. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, probably is that guy. It, Whatever it probably is. is. Yeah. But um, Eddie Ray. But he says, and and this goes back to what we keep discussing earlier. Where he says, I learned my duty in a place called Dachau in May of 1945. I saw what we were up against. I smelled it. I couldn't get the taste of it out of my mouth for years. It was black, evil, barbaric madness. It was the opposite of everything we stand for. And I knew whatever we did to prevent it happening again was both just and justifiable. Because we would be at war with it forever. Such a war is quite simply American destiny. And the very last thing you can afford to be is naive. Now... We've we've said that we kind of we both kind of agree that, and the soldier even says it that he was he was really born out of going into that concentration camp and mm-hmm. seeing the face of evil, essentially, and um, he said the the soldier then goes on um, to say I fought this war for half a century I've committed unimaginable horrors and was proud to do so for a just and honest cause. Until they betrayed my war. And he talks about when he went to see a general in his last days. They, sh- they show a general dying in, in a bed. And he calls the uh, unknown soldier in to kind of give him his deathbed confession. And he talks about Switzerland, a small airfield in April 1945, where he met the Nazis. He says, this particular group contacted us right after Overlord, dropped all kinds of hints, teased us, if the truth be told, and um, told us, or we, we told the Swiss not to give us any shit or a B-17 raid might veer off course. Long story short, he says, they met with these Germans, and because what they've been sending, the hints, I mean, it was wild stuff. Rockets, bombs, spacecraft, for God's sake. Even some kind of biological engineering. For its time, it was phenomenal. We wanted to know the asking price. Now, before we go into what the big reveal here is, this is not something that, is, that didn't happen. Uh, Operation Paperclip was very real, where, they, where the U.S. granted um, kind of amnesty and asylum to a lot of these German scientists, a lot of the people that 
be, because of, well, and it wasn't just Germans. Uh, the Japanese had their own horrible Mengele-style uh, experimental camps, like Unit 731. And a lot of these people were given kind of a blanket amnesty because the information that and, and research that they conducted, uh, both on people and technologically, was extremely in demand. It was kind of an arms race, even back then, to beat the Soviets to this knowledge, to this information. And so paperclip, there were a lot of people that were given amnesty, uh, that had done horrible things. That had that had done things to prop up the, you know, Nazi uh, regime, and uh, it's it's a very real instance. So this is not what he's about to reveal is not reaching. But these Nazis that they're meeting with, he says they wanted to know the asking price. Well, the Nazi says we would like to relocate. Any part of South America would be acceptable. A small select group would go first with the facility for others to join us if they can make their way. The U.S. may supervise our activities to whatever extent they see fit. In fact, we wholeheartedly welcome your participation. And now it shows these kind of company men, these uh, American officers as general. And they say, go on. And then the German says, we will order the immediate surrender of all German-held territories to American forces. Our armies in the east will continue to resist the Soviets until you can reach out and occupy our positions. And they ask, the Americans say, in the research data, he says, will be yours. They knew just what to say. They, uh, we wanted to piss all over the Ivans, so the, the Russians, as soon as we got through Germany, and they knew it. Now, the experimental stuff they'd sent through up till then would just be tidbits. We showed it to the backroom boys. They said, sure, this could work, but we don't know how to build it. Then the it goes back to the flashback, and the German guys are telling the Americans, let me tell you exactly what we can do for you. A nuke that could have tripled the death toll at Hiroshima. A missile, not an aircraft that could deliver it. Which So like intercontinental ballistic missiles, mm -hmm. which the, the Germans had been working on. Uh, soldiers incapable of feeling pain, remorse, or doubt born of the research conducted in the camps. Scientifically, Germany is years ahead. We lack only resources, which I am told the United States is never short of. If you like, we can show you how to put an American on the moon by 1945. Or 1949. And um, the general con making his confession to the unknown soldiers said, Those were the heady days. I just got my third star. Kept hearing people call me brilliant, dashing, a risk taker. I'd already gotten used to deciding the destinies of thousands. South America, sure. It's doable. And the Nazis say, Well, we have one other condition. And then one of them slides a picture across the table and says, He comes too. And the picture is that of the leader of the National Socialist Party, Adolf Hitler. Mm. And that's and such an oh shit moment. It, it, absolutely, it absolutely is. It's and then, great. And then it shows basically everybody's reaction. It shows the young, this young general making the confession, mm. his reaction. The unknown soldier's silent reaction. Clyde's silent reaction. Which I didn't even realize. I mean, it takes place like through diff three different points in time right too. exactly and then it That's shows the, and the they're all silent too yeah everybody just, is the the americans fantastic. are just silent and then it cuts to the germans and they're just silent and remember mm -hmm. that they say that earlier after this didn't want to go to south america they say it's doable 
So now they, they propose this, and then the same guy says, well, like I say, it's doable. Then it, it goes back to the deathbed confession of this general who says, I remember staring into hell. I heard myself say yes. Saw my hand shake the Nazis. A part of me would not acknowledge the nightmare of what I was doing. And that's how you make a pact with Satan. So you're thinking, reading this, holy shit, did... Now, there, obviously, a lot of these guys got out to South America. Uh, Eichmann got out and the... Uh, Israelis with the Weisenthal Center, they they end up getting him and trying him. Okay. Um, but guys like you know Mengele got out and he died in like seventy seven in Brazil. These guy, a lot of these guys got out. So some of the worst of the worst of these sons of bitches got out and lived and died of old age in South America. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like a whole other. It's, it's a completely different thing to think that in this story, you have the unknown soldier whose entire worldview was shaped by what he saw in the concentration camps. And now he finds out that the country and the people that he had worked for agreed to trade the life of Hitler and all these worst of the worst officers and scientists for some research data. Betrayed mm -hmm. him in his war. Well, it's not, not so fast because... The general says, but we've been greedy and we hadn't bothered telling London about the Winterthur meeting. If we had, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, would have canceled all patrols along the Swiss-German border that night. If not for a night fighter's chance encounter, a clandestine Fourth Reich would have been established in Colombia under Adolf Hitler with the full backing of the USA. So it didn't end up happening, but the fact of the matter is they, they had agreed to it. And... Clyde cuts, it cuts back to Clyde asking the unknown soldier, he says, they genuinely could have done it. How high did it go? And the soldier says, I don't know. By then I'd heard enough. And it shows the soldier so pissed off that he takes a pillow and smothers this old general to death in his bed. Mm -hmm. And he says, in the last months of the war, I'd reported to him directly the betrayal was personal. So imagine that you're him and you find out that this guy who is your superior and everything you fought for was completely betrayed. How would that screw up your worldview? You know? Yeah. I just thought that there's the whole story that and that's why again I said in ten years you wouldn't be able to tell a story, really be able to tell a story like this, because what more ultimate evil can you think of for your own government to conduct than agreeing to let Adolf Hitler go free? You know, yeah. at the end of the war, it's like it doesn't get worse than that. It's it's like the ultimate. It is the ultimate evil, the ultimate betrayal, and it and it was in there, and and that's something that you could see how that would completely change. Like Anderson, the guy who had been following up before Clyde, how discovering that bit of information would just drive him nuts. I mean, I can totally get that in in this yeah. in this the context of this story. And with him strangling that guy with a pillow, um, I, I think that reveals a lot about the soldier because before that you kind of see him as some guy who's willing to follow orders no mm -hmm. matter what. Absolutely. But with that, like... You well, but there were still caveats. Like he was supposed to kill anyone who saw him in action. That's but that guy true, in yeah. Vietnam, he wouldn't mm -hmm. kill an American soldier. Yeah. But now this general is not just an American soldier, yeah. but an American general. Uh-huh. But he kills him straight out. Yeah. You definitely realize that 
Like, he, he's not taking orders from anybody. He has right. his own agenda that just seemed to line up with other people's, uh, w- with the government's mm-hmm. orders and stuff. And this is, it. now, he references, um, Clyde says, you know they still brought some of the top men out, don't you? And, uh, the soldier says, it's common knowledge, Von Braun and his rockets and a few other members. So, and those were a lot of the people that were granted, that, that were gotten out during Paperclip. If you ever want to, if you want to do some research in Operation Paperclip or Unit 731, go right ahead. It will yeah. piss you off. I know who Von Braun is because I've read Manhattan Project. Hey, there which you is go. 100% accurate. Is it really? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Hickman did some serious research for that. Hickman must have had access to my library in yeah. the living room there. Yeah, Him um, working with Manhattan Projects and everything. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> but then Clyde says they were Nazis, the same breed of little dictator we've been setting up all over the world ever since. How can you justify all that to yourself and still call what happened at Winterthor a betrayal? And I, th- I just think that um, this whole, really, this whole last issue, there are some flashbacks, but the entire issue is Clyde and the Unknown Soldier sitting on top of an open grave in the rain in a graveyard having a conversation. You think about mm-hmm. that from a storytelling perspective. That is the entire issue. Yeah. I. A lot of this series is a lot of just talking and dialogue. And you, you really have to give Killian Plunkett some credit because it is really, really hard to make that work in comic books. Yeah. I mean, and Garth Ennis some credit. Just because, I mean, comic books are all about action and stuff going on. And even though you just have people around talking, uh, Plunkett gives you different angles and mm. just really detailed expressions on the character's face. And this actually just came to me, but this issue, this last issue, kind of reminds me of the last issue of Grant Morrison's Animal Man, where Animal Man... Oh, it's just Man, him talking to Grant Morrison? Yeah, it's just, it's just him talking to the guy who's been pulling the strings of his life. I can, and no, I can totally yeah, see that. I mean, it's 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 the same idea, basically. Well, the the so the gist of their conversation now, and remember that this whole thing was started with Clyde getting these random names put on his computer mm-hmm. to investigate, and Anderson prior to him. Up till this point, we have no idea who put those names on his computer, but we know it wasn't the the guy that Screwball shot. We know it certainly wasn't Screwball, and it wasn't the CIA. Well, this is where the <laughs> The soldier says, uh, well, when, first off, I, I just want to read this little bit of dialogue because I thought it was really good, where he says, this is the monster, talking about Hitler, this is the monster, the beast himself, the architect of everything we had to fight against, and they were going to save him. For the men who oversaw his downfall to then engineer his escape would have made the war, everything I fought for utterly worthless, and that miserable dying wretch in his traitor's bed knew it too. So I think that his... Him smothering that that general as he lay dying in that bed. Um, for him, he knew that the entire time that he reported to that guy, that he knew that it was it was all a farce. You know mm-hmm. that they weren't doing it for this idea and ideology that the soldier had. It was for the co-opted America, if that makes sense. You know. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, so it, it jumps to answering that question that we just asked. 
where Clyde says, I think it's time you told me what you've done. And he says that the soldier says it would take a lifetime to tell. Because that's what it is, a lifetime spent groping in the guts of horror up to my elbows, committing atrocity to order, and five years ago discovering Winterthor, knowing at last that the regime that gave me those orders was tainted, and knowing that I could not in consci all conscience continue my work, I have chosen my replacement. Who would be, in, in his mind, it's Clyde. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And the soldier says, I decided you should know the, the reality of the world you'll have to enter. I wanted you to follow my trail through the accounts you'd hear to, conform, or to confirm to me that your skills were equal to the task and to commit yourself to the point of no return. More than anything, I had to start you down the trail without Colonel Booth suspecting my involvement. And, um, and he said so he had to sacrifice everyone that was basically everyone that knew about him so Clyde could find out what the soldier was. And, he's, and then he brings up Anderson, who was Clyde's uh, predecessor in investigating the unknown soldier. And the soldier says, no, Anderson was different. He excelled with the 101st, just as you did with special forces. He went on to join the CIA, had no friends and family left to speak of. He remained an American soldier first and foremost. He followed every order to the letter, no matter how far into darkness he was sent and yet never let himself be used to some administrator's thug. His dedication to duty never wavered, just like you. He was my first choice, and I killed him because he discovered Winterthor. The betrayal I felt over that affair had destroyed my will to go on. I resolved that whoever replaced me would never know the truth. But the agent who had accompanied the general to Winterthor was still alive. The specter of Winterthor had never left him. When he read about the general's unexplained suffocation, he alone realized the truth. So basically, he contacted Anderson, begged for protection in exchange for everything he knew about me, particularly why he thought I'd want to kill him. So he, the soldier killed Anderson because he found out about Winterthor. Mm -hmm. And then Clyde says, so you're going to kill me too? And the soldier says, no, I'm not. He says, this is never how things are supposed to work out. Either for you or Anderson, Winterthor is meant to remain a secret you would take my place. And Clyde says, and do what exactly? And the soldier says, you would have learned the nature of the war I fight. You would have understood me and the need for me. And he says, before you protest, think. You have no friends or family. In fact, I made sure of when I chose you. Even if your pursuing me hadn't destroyed your career, linked you to death after death, made you a marked man, you have no life to go back to. This one certainty in your existence is that you're sitting in a grave on the body of a dead man. And this is a master of dialogue, yeah. I've always thought. Yeah. <laughs> and he says there, and he, he kind of explains more, but he says there must be a soldier. And then Clyde says, and who are the enemy? And the soldier says, those who oppose the American will. The crimes I spoke of, the genocide I witnessed in the camps, ultimately we are always right and everything we do is right. This is my legacy to you as an American soldier. And then Clyde says, did you ever stop to ask yourself if I want to work with you? I've never come to believe I was a crusader in a holy war. I'm here, or, and, and then the uh, soldier says, and this is, this is where it gets, everything kind of goes full circle. He says, you cannot escape from this. You cannot run from this place. I'd like you to. You cannot hide from me. You are here because you know what must be done. And Clyde says, you think so? I think I'm here because a beautiful woman smiled at me. Yeah, that moment was just... 
crazy. <laughs> and then he kind of goes on and explains why. And I'm not going to read it because I think it's something that's better left to someone yeah, to read the book. Absolutely. Um, but Clyde ends up. I mean, for one of the first times in the in the book, he's he's kind of smiling, even though he's talking to mm-hmm. the soldier. And he kind of realizes he realizes what's going on. And I just want to end with. He says, um, "When a woman smiles at you like that, there's a promise in it. But more than that, there's a warmth between the two of you. It makes or it made me think. Here is something that's good in the world." Then he pulls out a gun and starts holding it to his head. And the soldier keeps the soldier keeps yelling at him that he has to do this. And Clyde just says, "Why?" And he says, "You have to be the soldier." He yells because I can't do it anymore. So he's pretty much the soldier has been overwhelmed with everything that he's done and realizing that mm-hmm. he hasn't done it for he hasn't done it for the reason that he thought he was doing it yeah. and what and all that horrible things he's done has has been for kind of a lie and Not, it, yeah go it's ahead. always a cathartic moment when you see someone who's portrayed as this cold-blooded or you know just really strong character just mm-hmm. completely break down oh absolutely and, like i I'm, I'm sure i'm sure someday i'll i'll figure out the words to explain why it's just so brilliant but, but they still but they still they ex- he explains it in mm-hmm. such a great way that the yeah. the as horrid as what he found out Winterthor was, you could see why it would drive someone like him completely mm-hmm. insane because he had done this stuff. He only found out about Winterthor five years ago. Yeah. He had done all of this stuff in between these horrible atrocities, mm-hmm. but he did it believing he was doing it for the right reason. Yeah, he just finds out that his entire existence, pretty much was a complete and total lie. Mm-hmm. And then he had done these things and that which he had belie- believed in was was false. And earlier in the book we we'd mentioned the figment of his imagination Wallace who kept saying you like I I'm trying to explain to him that she's obviously a figment of his imagination because he doesn't even know her first name. Or when he middle name i think or is it middle name yeah yeah middle name yeah and uh he holds a gun to his head and he says jane j was for jane and shoots himself mm-hmm. what, what do you what do you think that moment means exactly him you knowing mean, was, that it was, was she jane, like like was she a ghost or was she just a figment of his yeah imagination? i'm not sure how to interpret that exact moment i i guess i've always taken it as that he just knew maybe he knew a little bit more about her than than he was letting on okay you know maybe it was something where he did a lot he he was interested in her too Mm. or maybe he maybe she was i don't know who i i I really don't know but i think it works yeah because even if he is even if he is nuts and he was just completely Mm -hmm. imagining her um we don't know that her name her her, that the j stood for jane but if Mm. he thinks so and he thinks that that combined with the, her smile is enough to justify him not wanting the soldier to to wash his legacy of blood off onto to Clyde. Then it's worth doing, you Absolutely. know. Then that's that's worth it. Yeah. I mean, while I was reading this, I didn't even I didn't even get the impression that it might have been some sort of ghost or anything. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was just all just his conscience and. Um, 
that it was just all in his head, but th that's a very interesting way of... I mean, it almost makes it more interesting just thinking that it could be one way or the other. Yeah. I think that's why he left it like that, too. Yeah, yeah. But then the last... You know, there's only three pages left of the book afterwards, and the last two of them are... It's, it's for the first time, really, you see the soldier during daylight hours mm. out, out in the sun and um, standing over Arlington, and he's just looking down on this uh, ambulance that is where, where a couple of people are talking about how they found two bodies in, in this grave and somebody dropped white phosphorus in that burned the bodies down to being unrecognizable. And the soldier says he is an American soldier known but to God, and he rests in honored glory. And then the last big splash page is him just standing at the flagpole, kind of leaning uh -huh. up against it, totally broken, and he says, God damn me. Yeah, and this is just amazing because we didn't really talk about the first couple pages, but um, like the, the very first couple pages of the story yeah. are him at night at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington, and he's looking up at the flagpole, kind of kind of keeping his distance, and he just says, I need it to be true just one last time. Mm -hmm. That's kind of him just searching for hope, and just the contrast of this in the very last scene, kind of it, it being daytime, because he's he's kind of fooling himself in a way, I think. Um, to look at Clyde, someone who represents these old American ideals to replace him. And, uh, I think, I think some part of him just looks forward to a better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, morning kind of signifies, you know, a brand new start and, you know, it's, it's, but he's not right getting, he's not getting that. No, he's not. And it's, uh. It's just, it's kind of beautiful because I just feel like symbolically um, this bright setting has, has so, it's supposed to show so much promise and he's there and he, I mean, he's even closer to the flagpole mm -hmm. and he's, he's even leaning on it. Like he is, he is bound to this country for life, whether he likes it or not. And he is like, he's so hypocritical in that, in that last scene because he wants Clyde to take take it over because he can't handle the he truth. can't handle the stress anymore. Right. Um, even though I mean he he doesn't even believe the ideals anymore, but by giving it to someone else and by well, I think running away from I it, think that he uh, my takeaway from it was that he still does believe in what America stands for. I think he believes that, but I think the problem is that. He, he doesn't believe any of the people that are the, the, you know, that represent America. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where he, the flag, what America is, the ideology of we want to do what's right and we want to, you know, we want to help the little guy and, and protect um, the people that can't protect themselves has been for decades and decades and decades has been co-opted and i mm -hmm. think the fact that the cia is the main kind of the main player in here yeah. is no it you know that it was by design and mm -hmm. they've been you've got your economic hitmen 
to to uh, borrow the title of a bestseller um, that have been doing regime change. There's no I, they have Iran in here. Obviously, uh, it doesn't always work out the way that they want it to work out. But um, I think that the I view the soldier as somebody who still believes in America, but he just doesn't believe in the people running America. Mm-hmm. You know, and that makes sense. And he doesn't. And, and Clyde was a guy who believed in America so much that he didn't that he didn't want to let himself be corrupted like the soldier was. He just mm-hmm. would rather end it. Yeah, I mean he's. I mean, I think I said this before, but he's he's very stuck in these like World War Two American ideals. Mm-hmm. You know, he he believes in. I mean, he, he is the embodiment of the American dream. And, I mean, in this, in this story, you, you know, you just realize that the American dream just isn't fit for this country anymore. And he, you know, just literally just shoots himself in the head. Or, I don't know, but, or, or is it, you know? I mean, if you're, if you're, cl- both, see, because both him and the soldier were guys that were products of the people that were, we're doing the heinous mm-hmm. shit around the country or around the world. I think that the the American dream still exists for most people. I mean, we're sitting in beautiful Oconomowoc in my three season room drinking beer. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about comic books. We're you know pretty what I mean? well off, <laughs> but I think that we. I think anyone who does the same that that kind of work that those guys do, it's is gonna it's gonna be hard not to be mm-hmm. cynical and jaded and yeah. have that same worldview and viewpoint. And, I, I don't think the unknown soldier was quite at the level of innocence that that Clyde was at, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's there's also a point you can make that the unknown soldier is the American dream, and just that he is he's changing with the times, mm-hmm. and that it's just it's just not what it used to be. Well, it's kind of like uh, is that the opening scene of Blue Velvet, the I David Lynch movie? It. Where I just know that one line that Kevin Smith uses. I I don't know, <laughs> but the the I think it's it's the it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think the opening scene where it, it shows like this beautiful beautiful suburb and this beautiful green grass, this well manicured lawn, but then it goes a little bit deeper and deeper, and the, there's worms underneath and mm-hmm. dark shit and a uh, severed finger or something, and you know underneath. Every every beautiful facade, there's there tends to be something dark, you know, and um, I think our country is, is no different, regardless of who is in charge. And certainly back again in in the '90s, when you look at what was going on with everything from you know the stuff that started because of Ruby Ridge and the the militia movement, and you had, but then you had Waco, and you had all this stuff where like everybody on both sides was terrified of government and they were terrified of the people responding to that fear of government and i think this book was born out of that and i think it was born out of um the the stuff that these that a lot of these agencies have been doing these regime changes and and things where you go how does that really benefit america you know does or does it benefit the people pulling pulling the strings Mm -hmm. And um, the unknown soldier being a, a guy who's stuck in between both of those, he he loves America. He wants America to 
to be the, the shining city on the hill, but how can it be with so much dark, heinous shit? Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, this is it's something that just I I mean I first probably read this book twenty years ago because I know I yeah. bought it in single issues and it came out twenty years ago it did that's right exactly it came out. twenty years exactly ago. Um, and even and back then I would say it had more of an impact on me than it did now mm-hmm. um, just because of what was going on but it still is I don't know I think it's it's just such a well made it's a powerful book. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, that that just kind of made something come to my mind. Um, like most most historical things, I mean, war or just any any international conflict. I mean, you can kind of see both sides to it. And um, I mean, I I've never been so you know much of a I, I've never really been into you know war history and stuff. I should really brush up on it, but um, I know where you could. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's part of why people are so interested in World War II, just because it just, it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't think about World War II and you're like, well, I mean, sh- should we have done that to the Nazis? <laughs> well, I don't, you know what though, when I was in, and again, my, so my grandpa was in the Pacific. Okay. I had some family friends that were in the Pacific. Uh, one of my friend's great uncles was in the Pacific, and he was a great guy. Uh, and I would—I was lucky enough to grow up hearing firsthand accounts of World War II. And my grandpa was wow. spent four years in the Pacific, and I have yes. all my grandpa's decorations. I have all of my. But, I mean, I was—I was, uh, I was a, a real. My brother and I were really, really, really lucky guys. And I remember when I was talking to. Um, one of my friend's uh, great uncles, a guy named Delbert, who passed away a couple of years ago, but he was in his 90s. And Delbert was just an, uh, an incredible guy, but he was one of the first people in, or one of the first people in the, he was uh, in the army. And um, he was going to be on one of the first ships that was going to land, or that was, it was going to hit the beachhead, uh, mainland Tokyo. If, and that, and that was back in 45, um, and they knew that if they did an invasion of Tokyo, that they were going to, he told me, he said, we all just were, for three days, we were on this ship knowing that we were going to die. Because at that point, and, and it, not just die, but have to do horrible things before they died. Because you got to remember that a lot of the, most of the people that were left in Tokyo were old people, women, and children no. in mainland Japan. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the soldiers had, had been killed. The, the military age males. And so he told me, he said, we knew we would either be killing women and children with bamboo spears or we would get killed right away. There's no doubt about it because of the mindset that they had, they were going to die for their emperor. And he told me that the, what really the, the best news that he ever got waiting on this ship to, to have to go into, to invade uh, mainland Japan was that they had dropped the first bomb. And that changed everything. And uh, when I was, but I remember when I was in high school uh, that, and I, we won't really shy away from controversy in this podcast. Yeah. I remember having okay. a teacher that was talking about how, you know, it, it just, looking back, 
do you think maybe we shouldn't have dropped that the bomb on on Hiroshima and on Nagasaki? And she had she was not and see like nobody else cared. But I said absolutely not. I said first off, it ended the war quicker. It saved American lives, and it saved more Japanese lives. It really did. But it's kind of a revisionist history that's being taught now, where we go, well, you know, it wasn't that humane of a thing. Um, maybe we shouldn't have done it. Well, it. Yeah. How how can you go back and, and judge something like that? You know, mm -hmm. that that happened seventy two years ago that yeah. saved American lives and honestly helped expedite the Japanese surrender and save Japanese lives too. Yeah. It was mean, a horrible thing. It's honestly like, I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell what would have happened if we hadn't. Mm -hmm. um, but either way, but it's, yeah. it, it, it had to happen. And now it's, it's easy to sit back and kind of armchair general and say, well, we shouldn't have done that. But it's, it's horrible, too. I mean, I've read, I have right in the next room, I have a bunch of books written by Japanese survivors about the aftermath, aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they're horrible, horrible yeah. things to live through. But I just, I don't think it's the, the right of anyone that wasn't involved in it to sit back and say, you know, should we have done that? Maybe we shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that kind of thing carries over to stories like this where we go, is it... Is that the type of thing we want to judge the, a character like the Unknown Soldier on? You know, what yeah. was his motivation at the time? I mean, yeah, I mean, the story deals with a lot of things that are mm -hmm. morally ambiguous. And, I mean, they might be wrong, but they might have led to a better outcome. Yeah. And, I mean, you just, you just see that kind of becoming more common as the years go by. And uh, Yeah, I like I said, we, we did... There's both sides of the spectrum, and we did horrible shit in in a lot of different conflicts that we were in. You know, and there's no there's no doubt about it. We did we did regime changes that we didn't we had no place doing. And uh, but at the same time, um, if you believe in what America represents, like the unknown soldier does, you can justify that, even if it is completely and utterly wrong and kind of atrocious to do mm. i think clyde was the guy who who just still believed in it and knew that if he followed through with what the soldier did that he would no longer believe in it and i think he would rather have died believing that than lived on and have that corrupted yeah makes sense mm -hmm. something that i noticed in here i don't know i don't even know if you noticed who hit me but um in the first pages, when you see the unknown soldier at night, you see him in this coat. Mm -hmm. And once uh, Clyde goes to meet Markowitz, you see him pretty much wearing the same exact coat. And he oh, wears that throughout I, the no, entire No, I didn't notice story. that. And I, I found that so interesting because, I mean, it, it looks like the same exact coat. And he's he's wearing it wherever he goes. Um, it, it looks like a trench coat. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's got that yeah. flap in the back. I mean, I'm not a trench coat expert. I don't know if all of them have that. You're not? I'm not. Oh, man. No, I don't even own one trench coat. Yeah, I'm a flannel guy, so flannel and skinny jeans. But, um, yeah, I just found that 
really interesting. I don't know if that was meant to be like a subconscious thing, but I mean, just mm-hmm. looking back at the story a second time or a third time in this case, um, it's just kind of interesting seeing the seeing the cues that he's he's kind of. I mean, it's kind of, kind of showing him descending into that into the path of the new unknown soldier, even though he doesn't end up going that way anyway. And then veering away at the end. Yeah, and that's just that's just why that moment at the end is great because you know because a girl smiled at me. It's mm-hmm. just the unknown soldier thinks that he has Clyde figured out, but he's he's just doing it because at one point in his life he felt like he wasn't alone. Yeah, and I'm pretty, pretty sure. True. If I thought a couple days, I could think of some other analysis of that, but... <laughs> I think we're in agreement that it's a great book. Yeah, it is fantastic. I appreciate it. I probably wouldn't have read this if you hadn't chosen it, so... Well, I'm glad I did. Yeah. No, I that's that's what I like getting out of a book, is being able to sit and, and have, a, you know, four hours of conversation mm-hmm. about something, because it... And I and I love to. I think it's even better when you can something like this that is so. You you could take completely different viewpoints away from reading this book. You know, you, you could. I mean, completely different viewpoints. Yeah, there's from a it. lot opener. And I think that that is what makes it so good. Uh, but the other the other thing, being such an Ennis fan, I think that Ennis is the best dialogue writer in comics. And I. I I was going to throw this one at you. Now everybody likes to everybody likes to talk about Bendis and Bendis's dialogue. Hmm. Do you think where where do you rank Bendis? I I would put Bendis under Garth Ennis with dialogue. You see, I I think my first impression of Garth Ennis was with Preacher, which by the way I haven't even finished, okay. which I really need to finish. You do, and I mean it it is it is written wonderfully, but you know it's. It's very vulgar, so I kind of I kind of associate with associate that with Garth Ennis. So do you? What I what I talked about before with the kind of the different Ennises. Yeah, absolutely. do you prefer something like this, the more like earnest Ennis, to the uh, arse face kind of uh, crude vulgar humor Ennis? I mean, or do you I like a little of both? Preacher did it in moderation, that I think was perfect. Um. I mean, it really depends on the story. I think this was perfect for this story. Preacher just had its great dark humor when it needed it. Um, the, I mean, I I really don't know if I've read much Ennis, but just this really shows me. I mean, you know, there's there's some fucks and stuff every once in a while, but um, just it, it really shows you how how well of a writer he is with dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I definitely agree. He's up there. I might I might put Warren Ellis up with him, just because you know I'm 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 a pretty big Warren Ellis fan. I have a tattoo of one of his books. You do so. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I definitely agree. I mean, everything is. I was kind of mentioning uh, Plunkett's details with the art that make it. Um, that still make it interesting to read, even though mm-hmm. there's just a lot of a lot of just talking scenes. I think a lot of that also has to do with just how believable the dialogue is. Doesn't sound like you're just reading words. Like, I mean, he knows how people talk, mm-hmm. um, and that's yeah. 
No, his best stuff is always like that too, where it, you get done reading and, and it doesn't feel like you've just read a, a book or a comic. It feels like you have just heard a, a conversation. Mm-hmm. Seen, seen some really good movie or something. <laughs> that too. Yeah. That too. Um, what would this, so having read this, does this lead you to want to read more Ennis or look at more Plunkett or what does it make you want to follow it up with? It doesn't sound like I have much, much to do with Plunkett. So that's not really an option, but I, I definitely want to read more Garth Ennis and, um, I mean, honestly, I mean, I wouldn't really call this a war story. Mm-hmm. It has kind of parts of war put in there, but I mean... It's a, it's an espionage book more than anything. Yeah, I mean, war stories haven't really interested me that much. I don't know why exactly, but um, I mean, it's definitely opened up my mind. Like, I really want to read um, stuff like Enemy Ace and stuff like that. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't really read much war stuff at all, but... Excellent. I would like to check it out now. Yeah, that's why Ennis is so great. He's just his body of work covers so many different things. But again, I think oh, yeah. something like this or war stories, if you are I've had a lot of people where I've recommended Ennis to them and they've said, Well, you know, I've tried Preacher and <laughs> I've it's read a little too Yeah, and it's a little <laughs> too over the top. He, his stuff is not always like that. Oh no, absolutely um, not. Even though I like I mean, this both is of it. Yeah. Great testament to that. Yeah, exactly. This would be something that th- this is a movie that I could have, or a book that I could have seen like Jonathan Demi making a kind of a gritty Silence of the Lambs looking movie out of mm-hmm. or something. You know, where it's just yeah. you can see every little every little bit of of grit and dirt in in every panel, yeah, and everything rings yeah. so true about it. He has such range. I mean, he can do ridiculous stuff like Six Pack and Dog Welder, where they. <laughs> They literally weld like two stars together that are named after dogs, or you know. Yeah, that... you have a character that welds dogs to people's faces. Like I don't know if his heart was really and, into that one. And then, but... then you can. Uh, well, I mean, he he returned to those characters. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's at least into it or getting a kick out of it. But then he can read like just completely serious stuff like this, and it's just it's heavy, fantastic. I mean, look at the kind of stuff we talked about from reading it. Absolutely. Crazy. We talked about it for over two hours now. Good lord! I know! And I'm not even bored. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Are you bored? No, not at all. That's good. I've got Garth Ennis and beer. That's all you need in life. I know. Maybe some food? I don't know. Nah, I'm good. Protein? I'm good. Okay. Cool. You have any finishing thoughts on... I I really, uh, my only finishing thoughts would be, um, if you are at all interested in anything having to do with military history, read Unknown Soldier. If you like Garth Ennis and you have not yet read Unknown Soldier, read Unknown Soldier. (laughs) If you like the original Unknown Soldier, read Unknown Soldier. Uh, Or just read Unknown Soldier. I mean, if you've listened to us talk, read Unknown Soldier. And... If you have, do you have a, an email set up for correspondence for this podcast? Not for this podcast. Okay. N- not, not necessarily, but I, I do have a professional email. It's clintstout at gmail.com. So, I mean, people okay. can come to me with it, or they can just uh, go to the 
show's Twitter, which so, I have, which yeah, I'll mention later. That works. If you listen to it, you like it, you have a, a follow-up question or comment, um, email or tweet, twit, tweet? Tweet? Tweet. Tweet. I don't use the, dirty. I don't use the Twitter. Yeah. Uh, email or tweet, Clint. If you uh, if you need some good recommendations or some World War II books, you can uh, you can email or tweet Clint, and I will let you know. Um, if you disagree with anything we've said, also let us know. We are not strangers to absolutely for sure. So I want to be criticized. Because that encourages me to be a better person. Heck yeah. Fill in the gaps of my knowledge and creativity and all that. And you you know what? Do you have anybody lined up for the next one yet? I do not have any lined up. Well, actually, I do. Oh. His name is James. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. I have you lined up for the next one. Okay. But I'm not, but I'm just a guest. Yeah, you're just a guest. On the Clint cast. You're important, but. Oh, thank you. You're, I mean. You'll fill in some gaps here and there, okay, but okay. I mean, but I'll tell you what other I, people on too. As a guest, what I'm looking forward to hearing are because, despite having a comic book store, I have not. I mean, I've read one percent of the comics that are out there, and I am looking forward to hearing you and your further guests discussing books that I need to read. Why they're so good? Mm-hmm. I think it's a neat idea. I think it's a really cool idea for a podcast, Thank and I am you. looking forward to uh, to hearing more and. Um, if anyone has any ideas for Clint about books that he should read, uh, or if you happen to be somebody who, I mean, would you, would you take a Skype guest? I mean, maybe I'd be open to it. It's an option. Yeah. Contact Clint. Contact email, me. email him, tweet him. Absolutely. I'm definitely, um, definitely interested in getting some more, uh, some more creators on here, big and small. So, uh, yeah. Awesome. You want to call it? Absolutely. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at uh, Comics That Work. And uh, you can just go on there to figure out what book we're talking about uh, the next episode, which will probably be in about two weeks. We'll see where it goes. Uh, but yeah, you're going to want to keep up on that so you can, uh, read it before we spoil it for you. And, uh, you can also follow me at Clint Stout. Um, I'm just going to talk about whatever I feel like talking about on there. So I can't promise you it's going to be quality. And, uh, James, anything you want to plug? You know what? I've already done my plugs. All right. Well, I'm not going to co-opt your podcast anymore. I'm just going to say you should, uh, search Cowbunga Comics. Oh, well, thank you. In Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Co-op. I think it's cowbuggercomics.com. It is. Or, or check uh, out, or, or listen to the podcast. Yeah, Cowcast. The Cowcast, where you we talk about, com- where I do not talk about things like this. We talk about industry yeah. things. I mean, it definitely sets this part, set, sorry, sets itself apart from other comic podcasts. Well, thank you. Because it goes into, very much. goes into the, you know, what's it like to own a comic store and all the business side of that. And you, you don't, you don't mm-hmm. see that in anything. You don't see that in iFanboy or any of the other comic podcasts coming out. So, Well, thank you for the plug. I appreciate it. And thank yeah, you absolutely. more than anything for having me on your inaugural episode. No problem. Thank you for being uh, here. Oh, of, of course. I mean, I, I couldn't get anyone else on. Hey, well, it is my house. Where else would I be? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. 
But where else would I be? Not at right your house. Well, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Happy reading. <laughs>